Um, well, anyway, let's yes. do a podcast. Uh, hello and welcome to Well, There's Your Problem, the podcast about engineering disasters with slides. I'm Justin Rosniak. My pronouns are he, him. Okay, go. I am Alice Caldwell-Kelly. My pronouns are she and her. Yay, Liam. He's eating. Yeah, He's eating. I, I, I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> I was eating. My pronouns are he, him. We have a guest. We do have a guest. Yes, hi, my name's Ode. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, oh, oh, and this, this is our, this is gonna be... Ude, why are you here? Yeah, Uday, yeah, what, what are you here for? What why why did we bring you on for Hello. episode Hello. 100 <laughs> of our podcast? Yes, this is the 100th episode. Yeah, Break his wow, tiny legs. How glad, tall are you? I'm glad I can share Uday, this How tall are you? I am 5'11". Oh, I could fuck you up. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here um, because I, I do things with trains and think about trains. Yeah, and we're talking there you go. still yeah. about trains. We're continuing uh, our I mean, brief series Cars? on the Penn Central system. Yes. yes, yes. Part two in our our series on Penn Central and the largest bankruptcy ever until people, Enron. People <laughs> think we're going to end the show with this, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I need money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're we're, we're got, keeping going for as long yeah. as we can. Yeah. Exactly. Got to get that money. We're we're gonna keep going until leftist podcasting goes out of fashion, which mm -hmm. I don't know. I assume will be when global communism is instituted and Has leftist podcasting just becomes regular podcasting because the Overton window yeah. windows shifted. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Once revolution yeah. happens, then we'll stop podcasting. So if you do want to complain, right, about our levels or anything else, you have to make a revolution because it's the only way to get us off the air. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> The true, the true sign of, of true communism will be when, well, there's your problem, withers away. Just like this. <laughs> that's right. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Within and against the pod. Yeah. <laughs> Before we talk more about Penn Central, we need to do the goddamn news. I wanted to have the, the fucking Chiron go off the edge of the screen so it seemed way longer than it was. Oh, that that probably would. I, you know, I considered keeping that joke, and then I forgot to. Oh, well. um, anyway, it it's an, it's very very Rodney Kantorsky uh, uh, energy here. Uh, Norfolk Southern managed to put twenty coal cars on the ground in the middle of the Northeast Corridor, and it's a miracle there wasn't a a a Sella train going through at one hundred and thirty right at the same time. I mean, this this is wild that you can you you're just so bad at car maintenance that <laughs> that you cause an accident like this best um, maintained best designed uh, stretch of track in in the US and you debut your amazing folding train yes <laughs> this uh conserves space in the yard um, <laughs> yeah yeah as as someone on twitter said and i've been thinking about that since they did every time you play like railway empire or transport tycoon or anything like this when you have a full-size train go into a depot and disappear this is what happens to it it just perfectly <laughs> folds end on end like this also yeah. why is why is the only photo of this been run through a kind of like photoshop paperify effect <laughs> I think that's digital zoom, but I don't know. Uh, um, yeah. my phone does this too when I when I zoom in. Uh, Strange. But I don't know. Um, it looked like from some of the images that uh, a wheel had cracked. 
Oh. And that just caused this derailment. This was right before the uh, Bear River Bridge, I want to say. Um, but yeah, they shut down the Northeast Corridor for three days, I think. And right <laughs> now they, they have uh, bypassed it with some temporary track, but actually fixing the whole thing is going to take a long time. You know, and this is not like bad track. This is the best track in the United States. And Norfolk Southern still manages to put a train on the ground there. Just incredible. Um, I don't know what they're going to do with, you know, I, I think if you have a situation like this, you ought to inspect every uh, coal hopper that goes over this section. Make sure it doesn't happen again. Of course, we're probably not going to do not that. Gonna, uh, no, no. <laughs> I'm back. I'm back. I'm here to Norfolk Southern. Man, if they could just run zero car, like zero crew cars, they would. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> not even driverless trains. You just have a guy get in, set it, set it to notch eight, and then leave. And leave. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's just that movie, but in real life. Absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Uh, you, you get like a runaway truck ramp at the end, but for trains, and you just yeah. kind of yeah. Yeah. Which is already a thing. Saluda has that. So mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah, and and you know if um, this way you can have one guy running seventeen trains at once. Mm-hmm. Sufficiency. That's oh, that's yes. that's <laughs> railroading. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I will say that there is a very direct connection between well, more the out sort of wash and the the aftermath of the Penn Central and this coal train ending on the ground on the Northeast Corridor. Da, um, da, 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 da. Don't try and fucking tie this back to the theme of our episode. That's, yeah, not, yeah. that's not what we're here to do. This is some shit that we found on Twitter that we're going to talk about for ten minutes while we all warm yeah. up. Yes. All right. I'll keep. I'll keep. I'll keep these facts away then. <laughs> but this is this coal train being on here was like a legacy of you know all the all the CSX stuff being shifted onto the old B and O line. And then Norfolk Southern has like just some residual trains that come down to Port of Baltimore by way of the Northeast Corridor. Right. Well, they were going to build a connection onto the the former B&O line, which is currently CSX's main line. Um, It was actually in the original Conrail plans that they were going to do that. Um, But, well, a couple of things happened. First of all, Conrail's traffic growth projections did not pan out the way they thought they would. Um, So, you know, as the 70s wore on and as Amtrak undertook planning as a part of the Northeast Corridor Improvement Program, or NECIP. I believe it's pronounced NECIP. I, mm. I don't know if that's true, so don't quote me on that. Kneecap. Kneecap. Sure, <laughs> kneecap, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, as a part of that, they, I think they elected to just go with, okay, we're going to keep freight on the corridor because it'll stay at a manageable level. Um, and so they chose not to build the connection. One of the, funnily enough, one of the recommendations from the, okay, we'll keep freight on the corridor, but with a few conditions things was let's try to inspect these trains more often so they don't fail let's as try much. to inspect these trains more often <laughs> not exactly fire comp yeah, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah it, in that uh i think it's in the environmental impact statement somewhere there's a line about you know trying to improve maintenance and inspection procedures so failures happen less often um yeah. and this has worked so out perfectly clearly yeah, yeah. So <laughs> as you can see we're we're, we're yeah I mean, I guess, you know, I, guess it's, I guess it's possible it actually was a track issue, but certainly from the images, it seems it was a real issue. And in that case, you know, really, we are learning from our lessons quite well, I can tell. Um, but anyway, in, in terms of the, the freight rerouting, in, in the 80s, after the Chase, Maryland crash, um, they ended up rerouting a lot of the remaining freight off the corridor, but then they still didn't build this connection. So now we have the situation where 
all of the freight that once ran on the corridor doesn't run on the corridor anymore, except for stuff coming off of the, the Port Road branch, which is the line that connects Harrisburg and from Harrisburg, Pittsburgh and points west down to Delaware and Maryland. So all those freight trains to, you know, Wilmington to Baltimore, um, to that whole region still have to run on the corridor. And that's sort of the last main heavy haul freight operation on Amtrak lines. And it usually runs like fine, but then you have things like this that happen and that's not fine. Um, so yeah, I guess you can thank uh, relatively unambitious railroad planning in American history for some of this. I got to say like the general low level tolerance for derailments in the freight industry is like uh pretty ridiculous when this sort of thing can happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it's, it's wild how much us freight trains derail. I mean, to the point where I have personally witnessed a freight train derail. Jesus. <laughs> Do you not like get in trouble? <laughs> if you, if you put a train on the ground, yeah, it just happens. It's like how helicopter pilots feel about helicopters. The train is a machine that wants to be on the ground, and uh, everything else is fighting it to keep it off the ground. <laughs> well, in other news... It's, it's, it's getting more illegal to be transgender every day. Uh, wow. and yeah, and it's, it's starting with the kids, of course, as every good moral panic should. Um, this here is a photo of, from out of Iowa, where Governor Kim Reynolds is, has arrayed a selection of extremely, let's say, curated Awful women. Awful Every every yes. one of these women has the kind of hair that you'd find on like one of those neurotic prestige dog breeds, like a fucking Saluki or something. Yes. Um, this is this is such a like a fourteen words as photo too. Like it's pretty clear oh what God, the yeah. what what the point of this is in terms of like whose femininity we're defending, and it's yeah. uh, mm. nice white corn fed feminine. And, and, yes. and of course, the, the the terror is all that like uh, your son might turn out to be a transgender woman uh, of trans men uh, and anyone else for that matter. There is no mention, so we're we're going back oh, yeah. into this into yeah. this sort of thing where you end up with like uh, a guy who's been on testosterone for like five years and on puberty blockers for another five years before that is having to wrestle girls half his size and then getting booed for winning. And it's like, well, what did you fucking expect? You're the ones <laughs> making him do it um i yeah i don't know there's a lot of bad shit going down it's happening in a lot of different states simultaneously um and today of course you had fucking uh jacobin of all people being like oh well, actually it's it's not actually this is just being caught in the crosshairs of something that's really well, about well, economics well, yeah yeah exactly uh, and i'm just awesome. like Ugh. yeah so, I mean, it's feeling a little bit dire, I would say, at the moment, and uh, all, all we can really least. do about it is, uh, I guess, commiserate with you, and put some links for some organizations in the description that you can, uh, that you can go to help out. Yeah, we, we, we support mandatory gay trans abortion at all times. We support yeah. that. Uh, <laughs> uh, the problem is that there's only three of us plus a guest, so we need help again. <laughs> no, I built some sort of abortion doctor 
Yeah, yeah. Perform, abortion, <laughs> perform as many abortions as you can. That's what I did that's... was I replicated the big daddy suit for Bioshock, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered. That's that, Rob. With with one of these with one of these uh, these these bills where they like take the kid away from the family mm. if they're trans. What happens if they're like a particularly resilient transgender kid? Like they refuse to detransition. Do they just keep keep taking the kid away from the foster parents? Do you become like a giant holy terror to the foster care system? <laughs> just put every single <laughs> foster parent behind bars. We can I only hope. <laughs> Yeah, but no, this is this is like obviously this is the wedge that they're going to try and hammer in on to try and win back all of the stuff that they've previously lost, like gay marriage and like abortion. Uh, I think Kansas, it might be, just it had a bill introduced. I don't know if it's going to get anywhere, but it's clearly taking off of these because one of the wrinkles in the the Texas guidance um, and some of the others that have followed it is now uh, we can in fact think we can prosecute you retroactively for this. If your kid is over 18 now, but received any kind of like trans-affirming care before that age, we're going to investigate you. If you take your kid out of the state to get trans-affirming care, we're going to investigate you. Um, and the thing in Kansas is now it's uh, it being mooted to make it illegal to leave the state for the purposes of getting an abortion. So, uh, yeah, this is just, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better, and uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the Supreme Court and who's on it, and I think yeah. playing the sort of like, the stupid, stupid game of like, uh, originalism and textualism has uh, like... Funding uh, Yeah, yeah, no, I'm... Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg should have never gone to that fucking wedding. It's true. Yep. Could have retired. Obama put, should have killed my, Scalia first, put, like he did sooner. Kill Scalia. No, he should Go have on. done it sooner. He should have put a pillow <laughs> over his head sooner. Uh, no, no, oh, no. I'm, I, I'm, I'm saying if you're a if you're a liberal president, if you're a Democratic president, and you have both at, you have both houses of Congress yeah. for like two weeks until you don't anymore. You've got to spend the first of those two weeks uh, just with a pillow going to Supreme Court justices' houses. You guys know that scene from Inglorious Bastards. Oh yeah, you gotta yeah. reenact that uh, <laughs> bit by bit. You, know, you gotta wonder how uh, how far these laws are gonna go because you know it's it's not gonna be too long before, especially if they they up, uphold these provisions about uh, crimes, com I, what they define as crimes committed out of state. Like, are they gonna start just if you're an abortion provider and you like change planes at Atlanta Airport, are they just gonna? arrest you as you pass through the terminal. It's, it, it's, a, yeah. it's a genuine challenge to things like the Commerce Clause and the Supremacy Clause. Yeah. And this, I Listen, I don't want to be optimistic about this, but I think this might destroy the United States. Um, uh, we can only hope. <laughs> yeah, we can only <laughs> hope. Trans, trans people, we might finally do it. Why? Why wow. are they holding? Why are they holding this event in uh, on like fucking the tile from a mid-tier like chain Mexican restaurant's floor? Oh, sure enough, oh, I didn't yeah. notice that. Genuinely, I'm uh, yeah. like this has to be like the capital or something, like the state capital, and it looks like absolute shit. They probably retiled it back in like the seventies, <laughs> and there's some incredibly beautiful mosaic underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a. a yeah, it's the it's the mosaic of like the the land that corn built, and it's like this beautiful like sunlit uplands, and they're like, oh, we put various shades of brown over this. In other news, Hi. well, the 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 great Satan is getting the punishment that it deserves in the form of an airborne assault from. I 
giant spiders, giant flying spiders are coming to the U.S. East Coast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and all of you will soon be killed by these guys. Uh, so it was nice knowing you. I'll, I'll, I'll hate helming the podcast on my own, Yeah, but... Oh, I yeah. will. I will. Yeah, I'm gonna get so. that pair of shoes I've been looking at. Uh, so, yeah, th th this has been in the news, right? And the thing that amused me the most about it was that the unit of measurement they used for the size of one of these spiders, they didn't just go like, oh, it's like a, a three-inch spider or it's like a ten-centimeter spider. No, it's a spider <laughs> the size of a child's hand. Yes. But this is the Jaro spider. It is venomous. 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 This is venomous. It was very big, but apparently, it, like several other kinds of spiders, though it has venom, its fangs or, or teeth or whatever you call it. I don't know what you call it on a bug. Um, it, it are too small to penetrate human skin. Yeah, it's meant to yeah. kill like they, bugs and shit. That's what yeah. Mm. Oh, Liam, you're still quiet. God, okay. Oh, I turned my gain way down for 2,000 losses. I forgot. There you How's go. That? Is that better? That's much That's better. That's way better, oh, actually. Yeah, you like that? You like that? You want maximum Liam in the levels? <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that I want maximum Liam. Yes, you do. moderate Liam. No, you want maximum Liam. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> So these things, uh, these things are just going to be around. I, I love one of my favorite things about the United States and climate change is that now you're just getting uh, horrifying insects just migrating around. So just now the entire yeah. East Coast just has like weird stink bugs that just yeah. live in your house, and if you disturb them at all, all of your shit smells like absolute asshole yep. uh, for um, yep. weeks. Yeah, or uh, the spotted lanternfly. Although mm -hmm. they were. Oh, they God, were more yeah. of a bumbling nuisance than anything else. Um, the real also, keystone the, cops of invasive species. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> they don't I mean, actually fly, they just sort of hop. <laughs> we're killing so many fucking insects with climate change, and yet the survivors are, and the ones that are thriving are like, oh, this thing like eats the eyes of children or whatever, and you're just yeah, like, Jesus em. Christ, can we, have, can we have bees back, please? No. Yeah, well, the, yeah. The, the thing about the lanternflies is the, the birds figured out they could eat them, so now they're not a huge problem anymore. <laughs> well, that's good news. <laughs> birds are absolute serial killers when it come to, mm. comes to bugs. I think a lot mm -hmm. about, um, about shrikes. Uh, if you're not familiar with a shrike, a shrike is... Uh, it's a family of birds, they have very sharp, pointed uh, beaks, and they will just impale bugs on them. And oh uh, once, once they're done, like... Doing that, sometimes they'll just leave them out in little like dead bug fences to mark territory. Um, e either alive so they can eat them later, or just dead to, I guess, as a warning to others. Uh, birds are <laughs> fucking incredible. Birds are fucking wild. I love birds. That is wild. They they and cats definitely have the whole like both cute and terrifying to prey. Oh, cats kind of thing cats going are on. like oh. a genuinely. I, I mean, in, including two birds. Like uh, house cats <laughs> yeah. kill like millions and millions of birds. Um, yeah. Just uh, yeah, insanely good at killing. Uh, at killing in general. Um, when I was much younger, I was also oh, a little bit scared of my cat. But it was mostly because she and I had a contentious relationship. Not so much because <laughs> your, she was actually going to kill name? and eat me. What was your cat's name? Flinks. Good name. Flinks. Good That's a good, good name. name. Yeah. That's a good she cat, was a man. great cat. She and I got along really well in sort of later years. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was me and my cat Wolfgang. A plus cat. Uh, me and a my cat. Great cat name. 
me and my cat now, Toby, uh, my big fat son. Uh, <laughs> of you guys have great cat names. I, my, had, you we, can thank my parents for that, Alice. That includes hmm. the cats. I'm going to shout out some of my parents' cats. Narragansett, Pokey, Lucretia hmm. Borgia, <laughs> a Norman Bates. I'm not joking. Wow. Great. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic. Here's, here's I, where I feel like I have to mention that I have a pet lizard named Eero after Eero Saarinen. Oh, and everyone else nice. had pet fish named Delaware and Hudson. And right. Monus, actually. All right. All right. All right. You fucking dweeb. <laughs> Get him out of here. Fucking yeah. dweeb. Well, uh, the, 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 when we lived in the big house with all the Formula SAE team members, our, our cat, our house cat was named uh, Kitty Raikkonen. God, I miss her so much. <laughs> that was a good cat. I Aww. miss her so much. She's not dead. She just lives in Montgomery County. Yes. <laughs> oh God, that's worse. Yeah. Um. Anyway, that was the goddamn news. Railroad right. okay. charts. Charts. Right. <laughs> Udeg, show me your jaw bones. <laughs> Cheekbones. Uh, why, I'm afraid. I'm afraid Uday's... Jay is a hard act to follow. <laughs> yeah, we gotta. Yeah, gotta. You know, gotta see how you measure up to to Jay. Ah, uh, we're doing his... like physiognomy on the guests. I see. Yeah, okay. it's like break out the calipers. <laughs> <laughs> we're just pursuing like the kind of yeah. ultimate Chad uh, guest that we Uday, can get. How would you say you feel and, about phrenology? <laughs> like, and it's Not futile great. to try and pursue the ultimate Chad guest for well, there's your problem because Patrick Wyman hasn't been on the show yet. Hmm. Mm. Yeah, that's funny if you know who Patrick Wyman is. Uh, I have, I, I, I saw he was on uh, Doctor Doctor Eleanor's. Uh, oh podcast. yeah, yeah, he's been on, he's been on TF a few. Any, anyway, charts, yeah. charts, go back to the charts. charts. Yeah, charts. yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess I'll start off on this one. Um, the story of the Penn Central's sort of unraveling, shall we say? I think hmm. begins with this exact chart here. Um, there was a time when railroads had an essential monopoly on inland sort of land-based freight transport. You obviously had your, your barges and whatnot, um, but outside of river corridors, they weren't particularly relevant. And, you know, on sort of a macro scale, the whole sort of trend in the 20th century and then to the 19th century was exactly sort of the removal of sort of dominant transportation flows from river valleys. So instead of having like places like St. Louis and New Orleans being dominant in the Midwest, instead you had Chicago. And that, of course, required, you know, travel patterns that were not particularly compatible um, I, with I like the idea of things like barges holding on, but I wish it was applied more broadly. I wish you had like a, a 0.5 of a percent of goods moved by like covered wagons still, you know? <laughs> <laughs> For the, I mean, barges, yeah. barges did remain, I think, they actually regained some of their relevance towards the middle of the 20th century, which is actually, I think, also one of the things that's relevant to discuss relative to the Penn Central. I, um, I have a question, actually, about yes. that, about the timing. Um, and I forgive my ignorance. We had fuel rationing in the United States during the war, right? Yeah. Uh, does that does one have anything to do with the other? It was just a thought that popped in my head. I have I have the no basis for this. I just curious. Or, yeah. Um. So I'm sure it had something to do with it, but I believe the general historical narrative around sort of the reemergence of barges has more to do with um the relative concerted effort after sort of really. I think following the turn of the 20th century and especially after the 1930s to improve inland waterways. So, oh, okay. you know, in the West, you had yeah. all those dams in the Columbia built, all of them um, had locks that came with them. 
Um, in the East, you had lots of investment in like the Ohio River. Um, you had EVA stuff of, tail, I would imagine. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. The Tennessee Tombigi project, which I mean, itself could be a whole episode of this podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you had, you know, improvements in the Ohio Valley, improvements along um, other sort of historically important waterways like the Monongahela. All those things together um, really started pushing forage volumes back up, as did sort of the changes in this sort of spatial distribution of industry. Um, I mean, not to go too far in the weeds here, but um, one thing that certainly aided the regrowth of the resurgence in barge tonnage was, you know, for example, in the Ohio Valley, the movement of um, power plants away from urban load centers. So, you know, instead of putting your power plant to power Cincinnati in Cincinnati, you'd put it in some, you know, rural place uh, in the Ohio Valley, which was, you know, close to the water that you needed to cool turbines and power turbines. Um, yeah, it has or, the advantage that you yeah. don't need to ship an open freight train full of coal just yeah, to exactly. dust over yeah. everybody. Exactly, right, exactly. Now you just run those by the children's hospital. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, and, and in this case also, you know, it also meant that you could take advantage of very, very cheap barge transport. Um, so you would, you know, either directly from the mine or via a train shuttle from the mine to a barge terminal um, get your coal by barge. Um, so, you know, if you, if you like me enjoy reading mid-century sort of electric network planning studies, you'll find lots and lots of references to, you know, Ohio Valley, um, generation growth, a lot of which again was dependent on sort of barge transportation. And that's true of other industries too, you know, um, you did see like chemical plants and stuff like that start to congregate along riverways. Um, Hmm. Which had no and negative repercussions. Exactly. Uh, it, was, yeah. it was a completely optimal business. The Kano River is perfectly fine. Very safe <laughs> to drink. Very safe, safe to, to swim in. You know, it's bring you know, your okay. Bring, bring your kids, you can, yeah. You bring can. your wife. Meet them. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to the chart. Um, back in the, you know... In 1900, or let's say, um, you know, railroads really did hold control of the inland freight transportation market, um, and that began to change when trucks appeared. Um, you know, trucks gained sort of well. First of all, they became usable, and then gained sort of access to an ever-increasing network of paved roads starting about the 1920s. Um, and as that road network grew, um, their sort of share of intercity tonnage and intercity freight revenues grew, and sort of began to sort of skim railroad traffic away from um you know these these carriers that had become used to and had been i think importantly set into a regulatory structure that was designed for sort of uh a, a monopoly by railroads hmm. um trucks were not regulated um so you, to back up a step or two here railroads um sort of way back in the beginning era were not sort of regulated carriers but beginning in it's 1907 called efficiency and uh, <laughs> liberty competition yeah. the free market exactly um, <laughs> But beginning um, in, in 1906 and then um, following another set of acts in 1920, the industry was essentially cartelized um, and rates were set by a rates and mind you, both minimum and maximum rates were set by um, the Interstate Commerce Commission or ICC. Um, that essentially meant that, you know, railroads, you know, on the plus side, you didn't have the sort of insane destructive competition thing going on where railroads would you know, get in these rate wars that would end up, you know, causing a bunch of financial problems for the carriers and their investors. Uh, but on the, on the negative side, it meant that they had very little, or plus side, depending on who you asked, um, they could not really raise rates as easily anymore. Um, trucks initially did not 
sort of fall under the same regulatory structures. And even when they were inserted um, into the, the ICC's regulatory universe, the regulation was neither nor as complete because certain categories of truckers were exempted from right regulation. Um, uh, Congress being once again great at regulating technology. Exactly. You have a, exactly. a, you have a guy going, uh, well, I'm, uh, a dump truck is not like a system, of, it's not like a series of tubes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Even RIP. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but so, you know, you, you had. Um, but you know, beyond the the fact that there were some truckers that were exempted, there also just the, the fundamental structure of rate regulation um, it provided something of a shield for trucks against railroad competition. Um, back in the day, it was rather hard to determine exactly how much it cost to move an individual carload of something from point A to point B because accounting sort of mechanisms, cost allocation mechanisms, and are sort of just very because basic. Of, un- because of accounting mechanisms and something called the mafia. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome to Polly's Back of Truck Services. <laughs> come on, come all. You want a color TV? Actually, my, my Uncle Vic got a color TV in the 40 and said it fell off the back of a truck. Jesus, wow. Steve Adoring, it was a great job if you could get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, but so, but, you know, in, in large part because um, of just the sheer difficulty of calculating um, sort of the operating costs of, you know, a, a given load, and also because, you know, generally because railroads were these monopoly carriers, they often priced based on value of service rather than sort of cost of service. Um, the ICC codified right regulation around a value service principle. So instead of, you know, being like, okay, here's how much it costs to move the shipment from like Toledo to Harrisburg, and then here's some profit margin or something along those lines, they'd be like, okay, instead it is of, you know, shipping, I don't know, diamonds is this much more like has this much value to the shipper and shipping. Uh, yeah, it, it's know, it's more profitable has, to have like yeah, a, a truck a truck with one diamond in the back of it than a you know six hundred ton freight train mm-hmm. full of coal. Basically, yeah. So you had so you, there was this value of service system, um, and you know that worked okay when it was just the sort of railroads competing. Well, when I say worked okay, I mean that flexibly um, and relatively. Uh, it worked okay when that was just the railroads competing amongst each other. But then when you had these other transportation modes gain relevance, who had different cost structures and. In the case of trucks, also you know, highly subsidized network of highways that were sort of growing out before them, um, that became a problem, you know, because railroads could not capitalize on their operating cost advantages. They could not; um, they were to some degree restrained from from innovate, like sort of implementing service innovations. Um, and one thing I think we'll probably get to later is uh, the rise of the unit train and the whole dust up that surrounded that. Um, even things like more advanced equipment. I mean, the the introduction of the covered hopper car, which is now standard for, um, you know, carrying grain and cement and whatnot. Yeah, so you don't lose sh- half of it over a bunch of commuters <laughs> on the side of. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, sweet free apples! Yeah. <laughs> I always love. Oh how no, in- no, I'm drowning like, in apples. <laughs> dusted, dusted with grain, like a fucking beignet. Mm. There's some um, freight yards and, and main lines and places where you'll see little sort of a nice line of weeds growing down the very center line of the track. And then you realize that's actually ah. wheat that's been slowly leaking from hopper cars or corn for that matter. That's um, trained body, dude. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, point being, um, trucks, so that's sort of the TLDR here, is that trucks were systematically advantaged both in 
us being having the sort of sort of fascination with road building in the U.S. and also by sort of the regulatory constructs around trucks. Yeah, they were um, America's special boys, and they exactly. had to get everything that they yes. wanted. Trucks, trucks equal freedom. Um, mm-hmm. I will and, say to our listeners who are long haul truck drivers, we love you and we appreciate the we work do, you do. We do, we do, yeah, we do. Uh, Uday doesn't, and he will be shot at the end. Of this. <laughs> 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 a <hard> time, buddy. <laughs> I, I better get it all under the wire then. <laughs> um. Anyway, the upshot from from that sort of structural context for trucking um, was that trucks very quickly and and rather soon after World War II began to draw significant um, amounts of especially high value freight away from the rails. So you know where your I don't know radio set might have once traveled by train from factory to consumer. Now you had trucks doing that because trucks could provide higher quality service because you know. Unlike a train, which is, and again, we'll get to this, I think, in more detail, reliant on scale economies and a much more complex network where shipments are interdependent. A truck is like, you put the thing in the truck and you take the truck to the destination and you unload the truck. It's yeah, essentially it, atomized it gets transportation. more individualistic. Yeah. It, it allows exactly. you to like help right. atomize a society because now you can have a radio that isn't the same as your 50 neighbors' radios. Precisely. Yeah. It, it trucks equal freedom. Um, mm-hmm. And... and Needless, um, stupid, uh, environment destroying freedom sometimes. Yeah. But you do yes. get a cool radio. USA, out of it. You do. USA. <laughs> Some, sometimes they 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 drive all the way across the United States and chicken out right before they get to Washington D.C. and circle the Beltway twice and go home. <laughs> I love that they were defeated by just normal ass Beltway traffic. <laughs> like, listen, if Roz and I can sit on the Beltway while I play Country Roads Take Me Home. And he screams at me about the densest highway in the country. Uh, you can do it too, you fucking fancies. <laughs> Pathetic. Um, yeah. So you know, radios, other high-value manufactured goods got shifted to to trucks. Um, and you know, from like a broad economic welfare perspective, like yay, the shippers are realizing you know more rational decisions about their transportation choices because now high-value goods are getting adequately high levels of transportation service. But what that meant for the railroads was that, um, you know, as they became sort of cornered into a, essentially this, this bulk sort of service provision role where they were carrying sort of lots and lots of, of relatively low value goods at um, sometimes like rather unremunerative rates, um, there developed financial problems. And those were, of course, aggravated by, you know, trends in various input costs, labor, materials, what have you. At that time, as well as things like, you know, the overbuilt overbuiltedness of the infrastructure around them. But again, we'll get to all those things later. But anyway, general context: trucks took things from trains, and that was very bad um, for the industry's financial health. And that was especially true in the Northeast, where you know the railroad market was disproportionately exposed to those higher value manufactured goods, where you had um, sort of lots of also consumer oriented shipments, um, and you also had relatively short length of hauls. So, you know, you're not carrying things a thousand miles, you're carrying things like 150 miles or 200 miles. Um, remember, um, before the 1950s, like what, two thirds of American manufacturing value is produced in the Northeast and the Midwest. So like, we're not talking about long distance this year, especially given that most of the population or not most of the population, but a rather large share of the population was concentrated in those areas too at that time. So you had actually a relatively close sort of integration between sort of production geography and consumption geography, which means that railroads are um, you know, they're both 
well suited to that because there was a very dense network of railroads there, but they were also very much under threat from sort of high quality short range service offers precisely because, um, you know, the median shipment wasn't actually moving all that far. Um, mm. I've rambled for a while. I'm going to stop talking and let us go yeah. to the next slide if we so wish. No, we'll <laughs> stay we here are. forever. Nope, nope. Don't <laughs> go to the next slide. Well, that's go your shots. Go back, go back. <laughs> Listen, we promised the people 10 hours of podcasting and they're going to get their 10 hours. Look at this, <laughs> look at this beautiful landscape. Yeah, I could incredible. talk about rate regulation for days. Good, do it. <laughs> <laughs> Liam, why do you have a gun? I, I, yeah, I, uh, so, um, what happened to right, Eastern yes. industry? Uh, Nothing uh, did, did, I don't well, know. Yeah, a bunch of yeah. shit. People stopped making radios, and then they stopped making bigger things. They stopped uh, yeah. making the unions, hats. The unions got yeah. greedy is what happened, and not General Motors putting <laughs> yeah, out the fu- shit for all of the, the 1970s. The fucking unions weakened the manufacturing yes, base yeah. of the yeah. United States, and now Danbury doesn't make any fucking hats anymore. Yeah, yeah exactly. Danbury. I'm, I'm I'm very excited for hats from Danbury to be one of like, like stealth memes that we get into the show, you know? <laughs> I would love that. Uh, Danbury, Connecticut should be raised. Mm. Nice train museum. But where else are you getting hats from? Danbury. Yeah. Uh, I get them from Philly. You lived in Danbury? No. What? Oh, I thought he said he... Never mind. <laughs> no, I like Danbury. Huh? Oh, okay. Well, you're yeah. wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, Eastern Industry had a bit of a rough time um, from, well, really early 1900s onwards, but especially after World War II. Um, there are sort of two, I think it's important to think about this as having sort of a few different parts. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff in the popular press these days, especially about, you know, offshoring and, you know, the global dispersion of manufacturing jobs. And that's certainly like very true. And I don't think anyone's really going to disagree with that. Um, but it's definitely not the only thing that's happened to American industrial geographies since sort of the high point of the, say, the Rust Belt's manufacturing age. Mm. Um so f- I think first, what you saw f- happen first um, in most cities was a shift of industry from sort of the core of the city to the outskirts of the city. And that had everything to do with sort of transportation and trucking and factory production and, and sort of well, the, the modalities of factory production and labor. Um, we have a whole episode on this the last time I was on here. Um, so I won't like, try, I'll try not to keep this short, but essentially. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good last episode though. Yeah. Highly recommend it. Oh yeah, was, I yeah that was a fun one. There was a nice discussion of whales on trains and tunnels <laughs> in that one. Um, Whale by rail. <laughs> <laughs> um, but essentially, um, as sort of production processes were electrified, um, industrial engineers realized that sometimes it's a lot more efficient to do things if you put everything in a nice straight line, um, which essentially massively expanded the required sort of floor area for production processes um, and, and sort of spatial needs of those processes. So on that first level, you know, your, your cities are going to look a little bit less attractive because you can't get your gigantic site for your like half mile long assembly line um, as you can in like, you know, some farming area at the outskirts of your city. So there was that. Hmm. Um, then there were things like, you know, the thing of there was trucking. Um, trucking both uh, sort of advantaged um, sort of rural locations and that cities were often very congested um, and very sort of difficult to access with trucks, especially as trucks got uh, bigger. You know, your narrow urban streets do not sort of work well with a 53-foot trailer, or I guess back then it was more 30-something-foot trailers, but same difference, honestly. Um, and um, so 
cities got were at a disadvantage in that sense, but then, and then also these certain locations were at an advantage insofar as trucks um, in connection with the expanding road network meant that you could locate kind of anywhere. Um, and so there was a huge amount of spatial flexibility imparted by trucks um, when they came onto the scene because they their their sort of detachment from these relatively sort of hierarchicalized networks like railroads, um, where you have main lines and yards and all this stuff that has to like sort of work in conjunction, um, meant that you know you could really sprawl and decentralize however you liked. Then there were things like you know management's hating unions. Um, cities hmm. historically have been you know centers of labor power, and um, especially following Taft Hartley, when states um, began to uh, at- adapt differentiated la- differ- differentiated labor policies. Um, you then saw, you know, production move to states that had weaker labor protections because, you know, managers wanted to exploit workers. That's actually um, something that uh, I've always found funny, I suppose, is like, uh, if you buy a BMW now, besides, I think the M cars, and I'm sure someone in the comments will correct me, you're buying it out of Spartanburg, South Carolina. Mm. Yep. Like you're, you're paying $70,000 for non-union labor because they relocated to those states on purpose. And it's just like, you know, the people like to get, oh, the, you know, at least this car is built in America. And it's like a Toyota is built in America. It's just built at a scab plant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, and, and highly recommend the documentary American Factory, incidentally. Produced uh, by Barack yeah. Obama. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We actually watched that for a class of mine. It was. At least I think it was. I might be confusing it with something. No, no, it was. It was. Um, or at least, okay. Now I'm, now I'm also feeling uncertain. So. Don't put me on it. Um, but <laughs> no, every, every movie in history is produced by Barack Obama. Yes, I, I yes, yes. All was. roads lead to Rome. All movies mm-hmm. lead to Barack yep, Obama. Yep, 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 yep. I, I love Barack Obama's movie, uh, Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, Barack Obama actually directed Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah, I, I'm, the I'm sitting down. Greatest film ever made in the dark in the cinema. <laughs> they're giving me the the AMC like you know somehow uh, sadness feels good in a place like this, and I'm like, thank you, Obama. Citizen Kane, produced and directed by Barack Obama. That's right. That's right. right. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why you guys are laughing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am. I. I'm gonna get our ten hours if it kills me. <laughs> I'm already. I'm already in podcast delirium. The, ma- the madness has begun to set in. Yeah, you I've can been, feel I've it. Already been recording for two and a half hours. Is there an hours mm. of service limit for podcasts? Uh, <laughs> not for you, buddy. <laughs> You're what we call non-exempt. Yeah. Or, wow. <laughs> <laughs> or exempt, I guess it would be. Yeah. If you're management now, okay. uh, the rebellion has begun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I could do, you know. Yeah. No, yeah. no I finished the sentence. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but getting back to industrial sprawl. Um, <laughs> um, so there is there is this incentive to to decentralize away from cities because, you know, as as they would say, so sort of daintily back then the labor climate was often better away from large metropolitan centers um and that that notably didn't take place only between you know um michigan michigan factories moving to the south but also even within states so you'd move from detroit to like fort wayne indiana or you know somewhere like that um where you get the interstate uh highway act in 1956 i don't know if that's in the notes specifically but i feel like that probably contributes Uh, yeah definitely definitely again because 
the more you have sort of the strong net road network and the more sort of trucks become this viable mode of transportation, the more decentralized your production geographies can be because trucks um, are not, again, they're, they're, I hate how theoretical this is sounding, but trucks are not dependent on one, on one another for, for movement in the same train, way that trains are. Train trains rely on economies of bands. scale. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Trains right. rely on econ- economies of scale, so they do well with cities. And historically, railroad-oriented production processes were centralized in urban cores precisely because railroads congregate on urban cores and because those economies of scale are, easy, are easier to realize when things are close together. Whereas trucks, economies of scale are less relevant, um, so you can just spread things out over the landscape in a way that trains um, aren't really able to do it, it, as much, uh, especially if you're a service-sensitive shipper. Um, so there's that. And then I think the last component, of course, is you know, good old government policy. Um, you know, During the Cold War, there were fears of things getting nuked, um, and there, were, there was a general interest in sort of just decentralizing production away from the Northeast and away from cities. Um, I, uh, the one sort of fascinating subhistory of the New Deal is thinking is sort of the, the debates among New Deal reformers about sort of rural modernization, sort of the, the choice between pursuing, you know, improved, sort of a, a reimagined and reinvigorated farming economy that could sort of resuscitate the family farm as a viable model um, versus things like let's try to industrialize rurality um, and let's try to, you know, put factories in the countryside to sort of get rid of, to, to sort of mitigate urban congestion and to bring some of the wealth of industrialism towards um, these rural and places. Doing, doing, doing Jeffersonism and Hamiltonism again, but like, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. this no, time we're wearing lounge suits. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, all, put all these things together and you have a huge shift in industry away from cities. And then as we've sort of touched on in talking about that shift away from cities to the south as well. Um, and then, of course, you have, especially speaking in the '70s, the movement of production overseas, um, which I, th- I mean, I think that's been covered plenty in the popular press, but um, is you know one that itself has a lot to do with transportation technology, specifically the rise of the shipping container, which cut transportation costs for international shipping just immensely. Um, like we're talking about, like ninety percent reductions, if not more. Um, oh, yeah. What was that book, Roz, you read? The Box? Or just Box? I, I oh, just yes. finished reading The Box, yeah. Excellent book. Yeah. We, I love we, it. I did, I did add a slide in here about containers, but you know, that's, that's definitely a, it's a fascinating look at how uh, containers really ruined the ability for things to fall off a truck and get picked <laughs> yeah. up by someone who just happened to be there at the right time. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge boost for a, a, a different and sometimes worse kind of organized crime, because then you, yeah. can, you can more conveniently steal an entire container or put a bunch of people in that container and hope they don't die. Uh, whereas, like, it, it's a great renaissance in stowaways and human trafficking, but in terms yeah. of, like, your ability to get a color TV, bleh, not so much. Not so good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, important pieces of technology for understanding that global network formation nonetheless. And of mm. course, that's not, I don't mean to at all sort of purport a technological determinism and absolve the innumerable decisions of the free trade regime. Um, no, from... but it's something that seems to make sense to them at the time based on the technology. Yes, yeah. yes, um, yes, yes. Um, but yeah, I think. The technology like it, it, it coincides with their sort of their ideological goals that you can ship um like a, an entire like carrier full of uh containers yeah. from uh singapore to you know the port absolutely. of new york or whatever absolutely absolutely I, mean, I, th- I think one thing i've loved to learn to say studying history in college is necessary but insufficient to create exchange and i think containers are an example of that like they were definitely necessary to realize the degree of globalization that we have now 
Um, but they certainly were not the only thing that did that and were not by themselves sufficient to do that. All right. Are we good on yeah. this slide? <laughs> I, th- I mean, I think so. No, I okay. want to stay here. I, I find it kind of complicated. I fully forget where that image was even. I just clicked it off from Google Maps. I think it was on the outskirts of like Bowling Green, Kentucky or something. Mm. It looks like. Yeah. It's a good, yeah. it's a good little right. like industrial landscape of just like yeah, we just we just lift this up out of the middle of like five city blocks and then we plonk it back down in a farm. Pick yeah. it up and put it somewhere yeah. else on, yeah. on some guy's farm, and therefore we end up with these weirdly shaped fields. <laughs> yeah. Um. Should I start with this one as well? Yeah, I mean, you wrote the notes for it mostly. I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I pick up until a couple slides from now. Excellent. I'll I'll, I'll keep blabbing them. Um, we, we have to we have to introduce this with our, our way of asking anything that make it sound smart. What is the railroad? What is the railroad? What is the railroad? What is a railroad? What is, what is right, a railroad? So what you do, Alice, is you take some metal, right? Uh-huh. Yep. And, gotcha. and and I'm taking you, notes. Uh, lay it down. Okay. <laughs> yep. 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 Okay. And then you 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 put another one. Uh, and you make it so uh, uh, you lay another rail, uh, and uh, and then what's what a rail? Shut the goddamn hell up! <laughs> 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 guys, railroads are when you do model trains but bigger. Oh, okay, I get yeah. it. I get it's it. No okay. gauge or no it's, gauge? Where do, where, do you, where do you where do they get all of the glue? <laughs> uh, the big the the big horse recycling plant. Yeah. I actually, my my local stadi- station is actually made of styrene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has to get like a hot wire cutter, but the wire is like forty feet long, and you just like <laughs> shave bits of it down to create some interesting like roof texture. So railroads, they they do exist. Um, this this chart on the right, um, which I guess only those who are watching on YouTube will be able to see, so maybe I'll read it out in a second. It's probably one of my favorite charts of all time. Because I think it does such an excellent job contradicting everything you ever thought about how railroads or freight railroads in particular work. It's it's also a perfect diagram of a Norfolk Southern coal hopper wheel. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Uh, um, so I'm, I'm going to read this out loud because I think it's important. Um, the the figure is labored average equipment trip cycle. Um, so essentially, what it's it's doing is it's a pie chart breaking down. Um, the number of days a freight car spends do- doing each part of like a cycle through a freight car's life. So, you know, loading, unloading, travel, and, you know, and so on um, uh, in, in, in sort of day increments. So um, at the time this report was written, which was, I believe, 1972, or I think this data might have been from 71. Yeah, 71. Um, it, the average freight car had a cycle time, so time between sort of successive loads of 25.6 days. That's a very long time. Um, of those days, um, 11.5%, so 2.9 days were spent loading the car. Um, two days were spent moving the car when it was loaded. Um, two, well, three days were spent in, in terminal yards when the car was loaded. Um, then you had unloading the car, 3.1 days. You had empty movement of the car, 1.7 days. Um, time spent in terminal yards when the car was empty, 4.4 days. And then the time that was spent in intermediate yards in both directions, 8.5 days. Um, so just to, I think, bring out the important part of the statistic, only 7.9% or two days of that cycle time is actually spent on moving trains. The rest of it is either spent um, sort of moving empty on trains um, or you know, the vast majority of it, about 
of uh, 61% or 62% is spent in yards. Yeah, it's so just really sitting there, and, and most of exactly. them are sitting there, like half the time, literally half the time, it's sitting there empty. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Railroad, this this, this like, pie chart wedge here is the only time the, tra- the car is making money for the railroad. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's railroading is it's not, not so a much terribly like, efficient unless you exactly. have exactly freight railroading yeah. is it's yeah it's 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 a scale business but it's a scale business where the the really like when you get down to it the name of the game is not making your sort of sleek trains around at eighty miles per hour or whatever it's getting the train out of the yard um, and and getting those cars moving somewhere um, so that you know your 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 potatoes we or, we go back to Penn running. Central part one just run yeah, every train exactly. in every direction at right. the same time lose <laughs> yes. track of where everything's going okay. forget a bunch of trains they're <laughs> yeah. moving that little proportion is much higher yeah yeah um, Let me tell you I, about the potato I call it harvest. low precision <laughs> railroading. Uh, it, it, it will get somewhere at some point. I won't know what's on it, but it will get there. Train, Aren't you train guys- is going vaguely in the direction of a yeah. factory of some kind. <laughs> yeah, so send, you know, send the potato chip factory a shitload of rivets. Maybe they'll know what to do with them. I don't know. Yeah, you could send It's not my as- problem. I'm a railroad oh. man. Life is terrifying and random. We just embrace it here at Penn Central. (laughs) (laughs) Futurist, futurist railroad. We're sending like shipments of springs and aggregate to food manufacturers. Yeah, we got. uh, We get down at the uh, down at the auto plant. We got our fifth shipment of Danbury hats this week. (laughs) (laughs) All our cars look very sharp. (laughs) Yeah, you got your BMW made in South Carolina. It just has a top hat on side. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, the question this chart begs is, okay, so what the, what on earth is going on here? Um, and I think this sort of gets back to the fundamental nature of railroads, which is that they're, again, a business that's all about economies of scale. So unlike a truck where you're just dragging sort of one unit of freight and trucks case a truck load and the railroads case a rail car load or car load, um, of freight, you're trying to build trains out of them. So that means, you know, putting many of those cars together and then sending them along the way to their destination. Um, now, these days we have ways of sort of short-circuiting that problem. So there's a lot of trains that run um, sort of just full of one commodity for one customer. Those are called unit trains. So, you know, rather than having, I don't know, your load of grain travel with all the other loads of whatever that are going vaguely in the same direction, you just buy an entire 110 car worth, uh, trains worth of shipping space and then load that all with grain and then send it along to your destination. Yeah, um, if you want to do this in Britain, you can do sectorization and you can come up with cool little liveries for each uh, exactly. each yeah. kind of commodity. So you can see yeah. on the side this is this is a train that's shipping coal somewhere. Yeah, yeah, so you have so you, we do have those these days. And we also intermodal trains which sort of take the unit train idea but are like, okay, what if we put trucks and 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 containers on the train instead of filling them with coal or grain. Um but Sort of historically, and this is especially true in the Penn Central's era, um, and it's still t- true for for um, a large portion of railroad traffic today. The way railroads worked is that you'd pick up, you know, a few cars from like a whole bunch of different shippers in an area. You'd bring them all to a yard. Um, you'd sort them um, by destination. So you know, cars going north or to these yards would go on this train, and cars going to some other yard would go on that train, and then you'd take them on a train to that next yard. Uh, you'd often resort them. And then sort of keep doing that until the cars eventually get to their destination, um, and then you uh, you know deliver them in sort of two cars or three cars at a time to the to the receiver. Um, so you, what you have essentially is this extremely complex network of of services where you have you know you have your your trains moving between yards, and but then you know within those trains there might be 
there might be goods for 50, 60 different shippers moving. Um, and that essentially is why yards become such a choke point in this process and, and, and why generally, you know, even to this day, the whole sort of terminal operations make or break railroading statement really does continue to hold true. Um, and, you know, as this relates to, to the Penn Central and as uh, to the general sort of trends we were describing earlier, um, the fact that railroads were, were sort of interested in these economies of scale and the fact that they were so dependent on yards and the fact that these yards sort of moved traffic so bloody slowly um, meant that they had a very hard time competing with trucks. Um, you know, it is possible to move a train over, you know, your railroad line at a reasonable speed. But then if your cars are going to sit in a yard for however many days, that's kind of the ballgame. Um, mm. Yeah, because any improvement you make it like so marginal. Exactly, right. exactly. And, and railroads, you know, they, they did, to their credit, do some things to, to resolve this, you know. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, the New York maybe? Central used a computer. Exactly, yeah. yeah and, and, and things like the Selkirk Hump Yard and stuff like that, those were all in, sort of investments that, that did to some they did, I think, yes. Yeah, fair to say they did improve sort of car velocities across the network. But if you look at aggregate statistics for the whole industry, the number of sort of car miles traveled by the average car in the average day stayed essentially flat through the 50s and 60s. Or, okay, through the 50s, 60s, other things happened, which sort of never, I won't get into it. Um, um, through the 50s, which essentially meant that railroads sort of aggregate service offer was remaining essentially constant despite them having to compete now with a a mode i.e trucks that was very good at offering high quality service um and that's bad uh and that meant that you know on top of all of these sort of structural disadvantages that railroads faced at that time um there was sort of this, this basic um failure to 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 adjust service offerings to reflect new competitive realities um so yeah that's sort of the the, the long and short of the sort of relevance of this to the Penn Central. Um, I think there's other sort of connections here which I think are important to recognize. For example, the fact that the Penn Central was very exposed to the East Coast, which had a lot of sort of small industries and a lot of just old infrastructure meant that they spent a much higher fraction of their earnings doing things like switching trains around yards um, than the median railroad. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of the general economic trends, that the, the sort of this 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 flaw in the railroad, the general railroad offering model, I think is, is critical to understand. There's also like a, a, a contrast to this, I guess the exception that approves the rule and in this era where, you know, the Reading Railroad does its beeline service oh, because yeah, they, yeah, can, yeah. they can like move. I mean, mm. when, when you can actually move the car a long distance to the customer in one day, the, the economies of scale are incredible, you know, because you have a you have a, a train with a crew of five guys making double overtime, uh, moving like six cars, and Hell it's still yeah. absurdly cheaper <laughs> than trucking. Yeah, yeah. it's the um, money machine. And, and I think I think there's you know there were other things that people did around this time too that actually made a lot of sense. Um, you know, but so going back to what was being said earlier about sort of just like put cars on train and send them in general direction of customer. Like that actually was how railroads operated way back in the 1900s where there, when there was no such thing as sort of centralized sort of network planning. But in the, in the twenties and thirties, there was a short period when um, railroads actually really made a, a strong and generally sincere effort to actually plan the movements of their network as sort of a unit. Um, so you would, you would give every single train sort of a list of, of, destinations for which it would take cars and the trains would drop off cars for those various destinations um 
and I'm simplifying a bit here, but essentially these classification plans would vastly reduce the number of sort of intermediate yard handlings that traffic would have to face along the line, which meant that trains actually would move a lot faster. Problem was, is that, you know, to maintain, like, to maintain that that service quality, you know, you need to run all those trains because essentially what you're doing at that point is, you know, all the trains become interdependent on each other. So, you know, if you have one train that's carrying cars that then connect to another train um, to avoid a yard, you need both of those trains to be running and they need to be running on schedules that work with each other. Um, and as railroad traffic begins to decline and as diesels allow sort of you to run longer trains, railroads start getting, you know, because of their historical interest in maximizing the tonnage of trains as well as given labor cost factors and what have you, railroads begin to sort of move away from that sort of very scheduled, very networked service planning towards more just like, okay, we have enough cars now, let's run the train, um, which does not do anything good for the sort of performance of yards, does not do anything good for the velocity of traffic, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then as equipment reliability problems get worse and worse, then this only compounds it and that you end up with this vicious cycle and well, yeah, and we get the Penn Central. Um, yes. <laughs> And it's funny because this is like, if you look through railroad history, we've been fighting the exact same battles like forever. You know, PSR claims to be, PSR being precision schedule railroading, which is often sort of the bogeyman. Um, and I think, you know, to some extent, rightfully so, of a lot of railroad discourse these days. One of the things that does promise to do, among sort of many others, um, is, is do exactly what I just described, which is reduce the dependence on yards by sort of pre sorting traffic as much as possible and having trains sort of swap sort of cars or destinations rather than trying to break up trains and resort trains every 200 miles or whatever. Um, and that was very successful on the CN and the CP. Um, I don't think um, PSR as a whole has been in any means sort of a, a cakewalk for the American railroad industry or has necessarily been all that positive. But I think it is worth pointing out that there is sort of some parts of the basic operating philosophy that do make sense and you know do draw on 100 plus years of sort of really the same diagnosis of what one of railroad's big problems are. Yeah, trying to trying yeah. to like slim down that one thing of like it just sits there most of the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. It's There's uh, a great you know, it's it's like uh it's like uh, what was that quote? Precision scheduled railroading. Well, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> um yeah there's a famous hunter harrison story where he's like a, a young hunter harrison being sort of the guy who came up with precision schedule routing in the first place um where he's like a young i don't know roadmaster or yard master or some sort of young sort of officiary in, in the railroad bureaucracy and he's working at some yard i think on the frisco it was um and his his boss asked him to look out over the yard and ask him you know, what do you see, Hunter? Uh, Hunter says, I see good business. Um, and the, the, his boss is saying to effect of, um, no, you're wrong. I see a bunch of waste. These cars are all just sitting here. They're not making us any money just sitting here. Um, and I mean, you know, if you look at this chart, like he's not wrong. And the part of the PSR operating philosophy that's like, let's please not make cars sit in yards for two thirds of their trip is also not entirely wrong. Um, yeah. I, I, I once again talked for a very long period of time. I apologize. <laughs> uh, that's that's why that's you're fine. here, but that's what that's what you're here for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, reminds me of uh, there's some study that came out uh, recently of um, this is uh, it, it was like what do we need to do a battery electric freight locomotive? And they said, well, it's easy to achieve. You know, the average the average car only moves 120 miles a day. Therefore, uh, yes. we just need 120 miles worth of battery. 
And it's like, well, <laughs> the average distance yes, a car no. moves in a day <laughs> does take into account that it's traveling zero miles most days. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Next which, slide, which, please. Yeah, I'm on the next slide now. <laughs> yeah. Should I keep talking? Yeah, yes. you're going to have to keep talking because you wrote yep. the notes for this one as well. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we have in our background, you know, trucks happened. Um, the general sort of structural problems in the management of railroads happened. Industrial decentralization happened. And then there were these regulatory issues. Um, so I think it's now worth going back to those regulatory issues for just a second. Um, written into the legislation passed in 1906-1920 was this idea that um, railroad rates would be set to sort of allow railroads a fair rate of return on their traffic. Um, nobody ever really thought to define what that fair rate of return was, aside from saying that in the 1920 version of legislation, at least, that railroads earned more than a 6% return on investment would have to, I think, give half of any earnings above 6% to weak railroads. And this is, again, all part of the whole cartelization idea of railroading, where you're going to get rid of the destructive competition problems and solve the issue of weak railroads by just making rates essentially fixed across the industry. Um, but, you know, these, these rates ended up being a bit of an issue for railroad managers because, you know, costs did increase, but political pressure on the Interstate Commerce Commission meant that rates did not necessarily always increase alongside them. Um, and this as, 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 you know, along with the, the general sort of service issues that railroads faced in that era uh, meant that railroad sort of rates of return essentially went and stayed very low after regulation was passed. Um, what that means concretely is that they did not always have as much capital money as they would need to improve their infrastructure and physical plant. Um, so during that era, you had a this absolute fascination, even more so than there had been previously. And previously, there already had been quite a fascination, absolute fascination with things that would improve railroad productivity. So this was the era of the sort of, electro, like sort of electronic classification yard, the centralized traffic control system, centralized traffic control being sort of signal systems that would allow you to control all your junctions and all your signals remotely, rather than having a guy sort of at each junction point, um, you throwing switches, you know, on site. Um, this and it, as well as the era of like maintenance mechanization, of course, the diesel locomotive, which itself was a huge labor-saving device, um, and you know you you put those things together, and railroads did manage to make progress on productivity and keep you know afloat to some degree. But as the high-value traffic was drawn away by trucks, um, and as industrial geographies changed, um, railroads, especially in the Northeast, began to really feel a financial pinch, um, and. They had regulation also informed the the fact that they were sort of in some ways constrained from from resolving the financial pinch. So um, you know the mandated provision of passenger service, which is becoming increasingly unprofitable, was a relevant sort of context point at that time. Um, but it just generally meant that you know they had all this infrastructure built from for an era when most American sort of production and population was in the Northeast, and most of that production and population was entirely dependent on the railroads for moving traffic. Um, they had all the infrastructure built for that for that era and, and um, had to maintain it or get rid of it. And both of those things required spending money. Um, and they increasingly did not have the money to do that. So they deferred maintenance. Um, and that was bad, um, to say the least. Um, it was also you, a, like a sentimental aspect of this too, right? Because, you know, oh, yeah. tearing up, you know, the four-track Pennsylvania main line to yeah. make it more in line with the actual needs of the railroad 
well, that seems like a step backwards. Yeah. Even though, you know, you know, productivity and the pencil- has has improved to the point where you could you do with fewer tracks. Yeah, yeah. And the Pennsylvania was sort of famous for for not pursuing a lot of these productivity enhancing investments even when they could. You know, the New York Central spent the 50s and 60s invest, investing heavily in modern signal systems precisely so they could reduce infrastructure and modern yards precisely so they could um, run a more rationalized train service plans and also so they could reduce terminal costs. The, the Pennsylvania spent a bit on yards. Um, so, you know, Conway and Enola, for example, um, the both yards in Pennsylvania were built um, sort of in that in that in that sort of time. Um, but they didn't, they by and large did not invest in large scale, um, computerized signaling, which meant that well into the Conrail age, you had all of these four track main lines, um, that were not sort of strictly needed, but nobody had ever bothered, bothered to sort of spend the money to save the money, so to speak. Um, and that was a problem across the entire industry, but I think, you know, me being a staunch New York central advocate. Um, I do feel <laughs> get <laughs> fucked, but <laughs> I do feel the need to point out that they were the sort of better managed, at least on this, well, in most respects, of the two merger partners. Um, so yeah, just a bit of context there. Um, but anyway, deferred maintenance is one of those things that and sort of gets you into a bit of a, a vicious cycle, right? You know, as your your maintenance bill sort of gets well reduced artificially. Um, things yeah, the, happen. The worst, it, the worst it gets. The worst it gets. The worst it gets. The worst it gets. The worst exactly, it gets. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's um, more expensive to fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You, you you're digging yourself a deeper hole, and you get to sort of smile while going down because at least you're still paying dividends and stuff. But you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but believe it or not, that it's not sort of a good long term strategy. Um, but yeah, you. you essentially what happened in the northeast um was you had a lot of infrastructure and a ever shrinking maintenance budget and then you ended up with a lot of rotted track um a lot of really poorly performing t- terminals and um big service issues because of that one of my favorite little penn central facts is in the the 70s i think it's 73 when they were they were recording a, a documentary to try to convince congress to give them more money Ross um, has made me watch this approximately a trillion times <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> it's a good one you want to you want to explain it uh oh are you talking about the propaganda film where the shit just falls over yeah yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the car derails on camera yeah 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 and they and swear wasn't, to god wasn't it wasn't staged, staged. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah it was it was a hot mess um and uh it, it wasn't doing the railroad industry any favors um i think um so I think to go back to the productivity issue, uh, and again, I'm, I'm sorry for jumping around here, but I think one thing just worth pointing out on a structural level is that um, the, the, there is a very particular way railroads often define productivity, which I think informs a lot of sort of how they ended up with the very particular sets of service issues they had, which is they always, starting in, in well, the late 1800s, actually, they often thought of themselves as, thought of sort of the fundamental equation of railroading as being like, Let's try to absolutely minimize the number of trains we run uh, while maximizing the number of tons we carry. So essentially maximizing the number of tons on every train. Um, and that, that sort of emphasis and that um, emphasis and then, you know, the, the, the corollary statistics for yards, the number of cars a yard processes per day or the number of, you know, switch, like the number of cars a switch engine processes per hour. Statistics like that um, ended up being sort of hugely important to railroad managements um, and remain important to them to this day. 
Um, but they they sort of they elevate a vision of productivity that's about um, it's it's much more about um, the the sort of the scale economies of the individual train or the individual yard rather than the scale economies of the network, right? So you know, running a like your 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 performance metrics are going to look great if you run like one incredibly heavy train every week. Like you're going to have an excellent like ton miles you know per train metric. Um, but your service is going to be absolute garbage, so you're not going to lose your shippers faster than you can blink, and that is not a good way to run a property. And I think, um, pretty, I think pretty concretely. Um, and here I'm going to put a little plug in for something I wrote a while back on this. Um, pretty concretely, you can show that those managerial positions um, had a lot to do with, and that that managerial viewpoint that sort of emphasizes um, scale economies on, on the level of the train. Um, have a lot to do with the reasons they didn't sort of pursue better service and sort of you know more network thinking and more just aggressive sort of railroad reform um, in in this era and frankly the, the reason they still don't to this day you know it, it it produces an imagination of the railroad that is railroad as carrier of bulk materials rather than railroad as something more than carrier of bulk materials as something that can you know for example compete effectively for goods of at least medium value with trucks. Um, so yeah, just I think something interesting. Because right. if you if you wanted to like maximize productivity, like I, I guess in terms of like car, in terms of like you know the amount of time cars spend loaded and moving, you'd run lots of small trains instead of a few big ones, right? Yep, yep. And 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 you also then are very careful about keeping you know your schedules intact and making sure you know cars are making their connections at yards and at sort of places where trains are swapping. Um, you know, mm. groups of cars. Um, if your emphasis is just on running long trains, you know, if on some Friday you don't have enough, you only have like, you know, 20 cars for your road freight train, you might just cancel the train that day and wait for the next day to, to run those cars um, on some, on, on, on the next day's train. So you can up the, the tons per train metric. Relax. The problem is, casual railroading. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and, and, you know, we don't feel like going today. Anti-work railroads. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, it's also Metrics terrible for crews, though, because so many engineers are extra awful. board engineers, and you just, uh, yeah. you know, you got to call at three o'clock in the morning, and they say you got to drive two hundred miles to take this train two hundred miles more, uh, and then you're going to have to take a taxi four hundred miles back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, the 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 world, the universe in which we're, like sort of trains essentially are being run ad hoc, as like you know these every day is a new sort of flavor of train. That's not a good one for labor. It's not a good one for for sort of service performance. It's also just not a good one for the overall sort of productivity and functional railroad network. Um, you also got to pay ass loads of overtime. You do, you do. And also, and, and I think, you know, not to make everything about today, but it also is a lot of the reason why freight railroads and passenger railroads mix so poorly. You know, it, freight railroads have gotten a bit better about scheduling, but their schedules are still written in the res, at the resolution of like the hour rather than the minute or the second. Um, so it is very hard to run a sort of high performance, at least in theory, tightly scheduled passenger train amongst a bunch of freight trains that are appearing to some degree randomly on the infrastructure and, and, and sort of optimizing dispatching for that because you know, it's, it's just two fundamentally different operating models that prioritize very different things. And the sad thing about that is at this point, that operating emphasis has been, you know, for lack of a better metaphor, written into the infrastructure. Um, you know, the way we configure passing sidings, the way we configure yards, junctions, what have you, um, that's all fixed infrastructure that is to some degree reflective of a much more sort of flexible operating model rather than one that sort of emphasizes, you know, 
schedule performance and the like. And there are real barriers to achieving that. For example, equipment reliability, as we've seen recently. Um, yes. But, <laughs> um, but it, nevertheless, it's it's. Uh, I think it is something to be treated as being contingent rather than just sort of a fundamental characteristic of relevance. All right, well, you derailed six cars. That's normal. That's fine. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> We pull a knuckle on our 14,000-foot train. Yeah. Yeah. The train wants to go on the ground. It wants yeah. to be free. And who are we to stand in its way? Train and ground are besties, and mm-hmm. they must be together. Um, so yeah. Just generally, pay attention to the visions of reality that statistics report, because they're important. Mm. Um, there's so many good examples of this in the, in the transit space as well, but we're already an hour and 22 minutes in, so I will maybe hold off on that. Um, um, I kind of put this one in as a aside, another sort of interesting factor around this era, although I don't, I don't remember exactly when Sealand started. Uh, containers, containerization happens. Starts to happen. The box. Yeah. The box. Our uh, favorite and, box. And the first things railroads do is Metal completely boxes. ignore it. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> yeah, as, as well you might. It, railroads had for a long while thought and experimented with um, intermodal traffic arrangements, so containers or trailers on, on flat cars, um, or and, oh, any sort of freight car, really. Um, but, um, and eventually those, those arrangements would become a very important part of railroad traffic. In fact, today they are over 50% of railroad traffic in the U.S., but back in, in the 1960s, railroads were, especially some railroads, were not too hot on it. Um, so, you know, you had things like the, you know, the Pennsylvania or um, I think to some degree the New York Central as well, um, turning away international container traffic. Although, you know, to their credit, the New York Central did have some experimentation with container and flexivan service concepts, which I believe you guys talked about last episode. Yes, um, just a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah. So essentially, there, there were there were opportunities to um, integrate containers at the very beginning of their development into the railroad network. But railroads, sort of by and large, did not really choose to pursue that in a big way. You know, there were obvious situations when a container would be on sort of a truck chassis, and they, railroads would carry that in their trailer on flat car service. Um, and you know, it would, it would be a container on the train, but only happened to be on a train rather than being sort of designed to be there. Um, but uh, the railroads were rather late in recognizing the opportunity, and um, that hurt them because they d- infrastructures have you know m- momentum to them, and the fact that the early trade linkages around containers were very much oriented towards trucks means that all the infrastructure, the warehouses, the ports, the you know distribution centers, and what have you, built around um, sort of containers and containerization. Um, was initially very much truck optimized and that has implications yeah. to this day um yeah. but yeah, i think all, you know, all ports are still like this more or yeah. less like you you take the thing off of the ship and you put it directly onto like a stack of containers and then you take that stack of containers you you know, pick it off and you put it on a truck yeah and sometimes you put it on a train after that but um it always, it if, if, if you're truck, lucky yeah yeah it always I mean, does always yeah although like, the, uh, you, the, they, they tried i understand they tried direct ship to train and it didn't work very well. It was very slow compared to yeah. putting it on a truck. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I've, I've read, and I might be wrong about this, but I believe the customs logistics also get harder when you have something on a train uh, rather than having a truck in between it. 
Uh, yeah, because sense, all yeah. of the customs guys are massive nerds, and they're like, "Yo, is that a train?" And they have to <laughs> wow. they have to stop to think about the train for a while. They have to like, yeah, yeah. As opposed to uh, you know, putting on a truck, you can pay a drayage driver a negative wage yep. to uh, to bring it over uh, half a mile to the train. The uh, I, the I, mouth thought, I thought all those guys were like sword of the earth anti-vaccine mandate guys who took a week off work to drive around honking their horns. Well, they would if if they took a week off of work, they would have more money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's how they can afford to do it. Yeah, it's unfortunately it's a rent to own scheme. So you uh you know you wind up losing your tractor trailer. It gets repossessed in the middle of um in the middle of the protest. <laughs> I hope our guy from Seven Eleven is doing all right. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, we, we, um, Liam and I got mistaken for people who know about trucking by a guy working at Seven uh, Eleven oh in boy. Washington D.C. and he's like, "Do you know anything about trucking?" And uh, I could say, well, "Don't go into drayage." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we know the absolute bare minimum guy, but uh, don't go into drayage. You you deserve a living wage. Yep, there's a great book out there if anyone's curious. Um, it's called getting the goods it's by i think two people at the cornell ilr school or he was published by cornell ILR school. one of the two um but it talks about it's a bit dated at this point but it talks about the sort of labor ecosystem around the port of los angeles um and spends quite a while talking about just how exploitative drayage is um and how terrible it is you know not only for the drivers but also for the environment because you know when you have all these drivers earning essentially nothing they're going to buy old very polluting trucks um, to, Which are you know, idling all the time, anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's, right. it's just the whole system is a, a, a disaster, um, and it's and yeah, you can read about that many places. But if you're looking for um, a book length look at it, I do recommend that book. Yeah, and if you're um, looking for yeah. prestige TV, you can watch season two of The Wire. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the funny thing about containers is, you know, in this era where the railroads were really hurting, they took one look at what would eventually become their bread and butter, and they're like. Nah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. 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 Um, and what's interesting about that too is that, and this is something I'm still sort of trying to wrap my head around um, in my negligible free time, um, is the is the fact that you know initially and really I think until the, the 80s and 90s, these intermodal services weren't actually that profitable for railroads. Um, some of that, I think, had to do with the fact that it was only around then that we were really figuring out how to actually calculate the operating cost of different parts of their network. Um, but there's, I mean, there's a great um, study somewhere online of Congress Intermodal Service in like 1982, and you know, it was earning them like a one percent margin um, on 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 sort of fully allocated costs. So like this, you know, this this traffic was was not always all that great for them, but they it was one of the few growth areas. They still did pursue it and very aggressively try to take costs out of it, um, whether that be in terminals or labor or equipment design or what have you. Um, so I think, you know, I, I, not to absolve um, the various railroads of the, the Northeast in particular of, of being having a somewhat confused position relative to intermodal traffic and containers in particular, um, but I think it is rec worth recognizing that, you know, what has eventually become the, the great sort of growth engine of railroading um, post-deregulation was at least before deregulation, not always a terribly profitable line of business for railroads. If it still was a fast-growing one, um, and I think, I mean, I think from like a geographic systems perspective, thinking about what exactly it took to make that profitable is a fascinating thing. But again, I guess that would be another podcast. 
Oh yeah, we we should we should talk about containers sometime. Well, we should. We yes. should. I I I am I would love to come back for that if you want. Well, the container what? store. Yeah. But what does this have to do with the Pennsylvania Central Railroad system? Oh well. my god. <laughs> Perhaps we'll answer that question in a uh, fourth part. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we talked a lot about the how the freight economics were being fucked up, but I think another thing is that the passenger economics were really fucked up. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hi, it's Justin. Uh, so this is a commercial for the podcast that you're already listening to. Uh, people are annoyed by these, so let me get to the point. We have this thing called Patreon, right? The deal is you give us two bucks a month, and we give you an extra episode once a month. Uh, sometimes it's a little inconsistent, but, you know, it's two bucks. You get what you pay for. Um, it also gets you our full back catalog of bonus episodes, so you can learn about exciting topics like guns, pickup trucks, or pickup trucks with guns on them. The money we raise through Patreon goes to making sure that the only ad you hear on this podcast is this one. Anyway, that's something to consider if you have two bucks to spare each month. Uh, join at patreon.com forward slash WTYP pod. Do it if you want. Or don't. It's your decision, and we respect that. Back to the show. So, both the Pennsylvania and the New York Central had considerably, you know, pruned their passenger services before they merged, right? Um, lots of long-distance service were cut, uh, you know, back to like one train a day, right? Uh, there's a lot of local service that was lost. You still had, you, you, you ended commuter train service in cities like Pittsburgh, Columbus, Buffalo, so on and so forth. But there were still mail contracts, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the post office would, um, you know, they'd ship mail on scheduled passenger trains rather than freight trains because, you know, they're much more reliable. They run mm. on a schedule, unlike the freight trains, which don't. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, so all these trains had a reason to run, right? So, for instance, this right here is a train called the Buffalo Day Express. Woo! <laughs> and that went from Washington, D.C. to Buffalo by way of York, Harrisburg, Woo! Williamsport, <laughs> Emporium, and Olean. Now I see why. We've been yeah. to Emporium. <laughs> yes. We shot we off to fireworks the, there. We went I, to I, the I sheets say. there. Real quickly, that one thing I appreciate with co-locating your passenger and your mail traffic is that uh, you can do this by road as well, and it leads you to one of my favorite methods of transportation, very common in uh, like the more northern reaches of Scandinavia, a bus with a big mail compartment on the yes, back. Yes, post buses. I love a post bus. Post buses are cool. I like po the post office should do more. Post buses, post postal banking accounts. Um, oh, yeah. The post Which they're, tr they're now everything. trying to eliminate, incidentally. Uh, there's, a, there's a rider that just went through that would eliminate postal banking. Uh, really? So, I yeah, didn't yeah, realize yeah. we had it in the United States for a long time. Yeah, it went yeah. away. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. The one good thing Damn. Elizabeth Warren ever proposed is bringing it back. Yeah, I, I, I'm like, I'm, the, way that the, the way the libs want the military to do everything, I want the post office to do everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we finally got, if we got some postmasters in there, we could finally sort out the ailing U.S. military. Yeah. 
really organize mm. things, you know? So now, this, this Buffalo Day Express, before Penn Central, this was, you know, a, a train with many coaches, you know, it had sleeping cars, or didn't have sleeping cars, it was Day Express. The Night Express had sleeping cars. Um, you know, and, and this was eventually pruned back to one coach and one baggage car. Um, and, you know, but the baggage car was carrying mail, the train was still making money, right? Hmm. Now, in September 1967, which is the year before the merger, the post office canceled nearly every mail by rail contract, right? Um, that included Perfect services. Timing. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. they still ship some bulk mail on the Northeast Corridor. Um, they still, uh, but anything that was like a railway post office where the mail was sorted en route, that was gone. It was over. And that was some of the most profitable traffic for the railroads, right? And this left every railroad in a pickle, but especially the Penn Central, since they had a huge passenger network. And now all those passenger trains were going to be running at a, uh, at a loss because, you know, it was just a lot of times it was faster, more convenient to drive now because they built all those interstates. And the airlines uh, were starting to be able to compete on price, right? Worst um, thing to ever happen to America. Exactly. <laughs> Um, so, you know, you weren't going to be able to improve speeds and make these passenger trains competitive without just a monumental investment in, you know, high speed railroad infrastructure, right? Mm. Um, which, which Penn Central is perfectly suited to do with its huge cash reserves of several hours worth of money. Yes. Now this is this is because of uh, there's some counterintuitive economics of passenger transport. It's like right, a guy who has just stalled a Cessna, right, and he's looking <laughs> at the the field he's about to auger into, and a guy comes on the radio and he says, "Don't worry, it's fine. If you can invent a jet engine and build one independently in the next uh, minute, you'll be fine." Ah, it's also a metaphor for climate change. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so. Some of the economics of passenger transport are a little counterintuitive, right? But the faster you go, the cheaper it is, right? And sort of save for cars because you don't have any labor expenses on that because you drive the car yourself. Um, but yeah, your, your railroad travel is pretty labor intensive, right? If you have a long distance train, you have an engineer, you have multiple conductors, you have sleeping car attendants, you know, you have... Uh, you have to do all the maintenance. You got to do all the yeah. maintenance. You got to have a bunch of people in the yard to, like, uh, you know, do all the preparations for the. You got to have someone on Twitter to get complained at about it. You yeah. get a lot of yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, now, if you have if you have a train that goes overnight, right now you need two crews, right or three crews, so they can run, you know, in shifts, keep the train moving all the time, right. Mm. So yeah, if you if you if you run a train that's like sixteen hours from New York to Chicago, you have two crews on that train. Each Instead one does. of doing the like sleeper crew thing of uh, you get on a sleeper train and the crew will just go to sleep with you. All of you climb into one huge oh, bed, one bed, the, bed. The, like, yeah. the like length a, of the train. Yeah, it's one flat car. Yeah, with like uh, <laughs> sheets <laughs> on it. Yeah, they just they just they just stop and uh, you know you all go to sleep. You wake you up refreshed stumble. and you continue you continue your train journey. That's what like... a sleeper train is. So if if you if you run a train from New York to Chicago, right, in sixteen hours, in order for that to, you need two full crews per train, 
And in order to run the train daily, you need four trains in total, right? And if you compare this to a plane, which has less capacity but a shorter turnaround, right? Uh, you know, I, I, I guess, for example, like uh, in 1965, the 20th Century Limited, New York Central's Chicago to New York train, the one coach, seven sleeper cars that had a total of 119 bedrooms. And those are like a mix of single and double rooms. So maybe it has about 260 passengers on it, right? A Boeing mm. 727, by contrast, seats 109, but it makes it from New York to Chicago in three hours, right? And has a much smaller crew. So, you know, maybe it takes an hour to turn around, right? Um, and then it can come back with another load of passengers before the cruise shift is over, right? So by the time the 20th Century Limited has completed one set of trips, the single 727 has gone back and forth four times and transported as many passengers, right? Um, so this is, this is very difficult economics for the railroads to overcome here, especially on longer distance trains and Penn Central operated dozens of them, right? Mm. Uh, the other thing is air travel was much more enjoyable back then, right? You know, nobody had thought to hijack a plane yet. So there weren't even metal detectors. You know, the seats were bigger. Smoke. You the could smoke day. on the plane. You could mm -hmm. sexually harass the stewardesses. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just you're just hanging out. I mean, it's exactly. it's fine. And and if you wanted to, you could hijack a plane and just be, be fine. They give they yeah. get they give you everything you wanted, and you could just leave. Yeah, like you could have nice, a nice Havana vacation. Nice vacation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love the idea of like a, a movie where a guy hijacks an airliner just so he doesn't have to go home to like his shitty boomer wife and his shitty boomer kids. And it just turns <laughs> into like hijinks with his new Cuban friend Raul. <laughs> <laughs> You'd watch that. Fuck off. You'd yeah. absolutely watch that. I'd watch that. I'd watch that. All right. I want I want yep. I want a pitch. I want a treatment for this on my desk by uh, by Monday. Got you. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, like, I got through John Taliban. I can get through anything. Who, who do you who do you see in the role of Raul here? Uh, <laughs> I gotta find some Cuban friends. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Any Cubans listening to this podcast, be our friends. Actually, no, that's parasocial. I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, I, no, do, do not be our friends. I've spent enough today arguing with the 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 whatever podcast app that's like be social with us, and it's like no. <laughs> <laughs> These long distance trains are losing money, and there's only two ways you can handle that. You either cut the cut surface and combine trains, or you improve infrastructure because you can't really. It was you could, still you very could jack difficult. up the price five thousand percent. Um, no, because I think that was regulated by the ICC. Ah, oh, fuck you, the big government. Yeah, shit. Okay, and you couldn't cancel the trains because again, that was regulated by the ICC. Um, so they you know they would so hard. Yeah, they, 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 one of the first things they, that uh, Saunders in particular went to do right after the merger was try and eliminate the, tra the passenger trains or pawn them off on the government somehow. Just, yeah. right? it's, the federal government putting a railroad in a sort of Kobayashi Maru situation here. Mm -hmm. And, and Perlman, I'll note, was, was really big on this in the New York Central before the merger. Um, and yeah, he, he, he did things like acts the 20th Century Limited, combine it with like a coach train. Um, but you know, even then, you had these, still these gigantic deficits, and they just only got larger over the time. Uh, and and also, as the equipment got worse, as the 
all these things very much sort of came together in a really nasty way. Deferred maintenance, passenger deficits, all of them become this big sort of ball going down a hill um, in a very unpleasant and, and eventually disastrous fashion. Oh, yeah. And, and, and one of the things is, you know, you, you might think these passenger trains, well, they're a little, they're kind of a small section of the system, but you required so much labor to keep them running. Even and when infrastructure. they were, yeah, even when they were comically, you know, stinky, you know, yeah. it was still a massive expense to run them. Right. Mm. So like, uh, if you look at something like this, this train here is the spirit of St. Louis. Um, this is, this is actually in the early Conrail era. Um, and it, it's a 24 hour long haul train from New York city to St. Louis, and they've reduced it to one sleeping car and one coach. Oh geez. It really is one, two, three, mm-hmm. four. Fuck. Yeah. And uh, I think it was, um, you don't even have a dining car. I think they had a little, <laughs> nothing. yeah, they had like you a little, deserve nothing. they had a you... little broiler in the back of the coach. I think. Consider yourselves lucky they don't throw you out on the track. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I noticed that they still have two locomotives on that. I have to imagine part of that is because they were, had no faith whatsoever that one of the locomotives would not sort of conk out partway across Indiana or whatever. Oh yeah. These E units are like, I don't know, 500 Ancient. years old. Yeah. You know, inherited from the, uh, Holy Roman Empire. Um, <laughs> yeah, the E stands for elector. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, so it, it combine this with, you know, holy roly, on track. I so, want to see a Holy Roman train. I yeah. really do. I think that would be cool as hell. It very nearly happened. The holy Roman Empire only broke up in like, what? 1840 yeah. something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something, yeah. something like. It's probably, uh, it probably is something, something Prussian, maybe. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, thank you. The um, mm-hmm. uh, wh- where was I? You know, so you know the train train schedules are you know slipping. They're getting longer and longer. As the train schedules get longer, the trains become more expensive to operate, uh, right? So unless people ride know, them, unless people ride them, so they're not making as much money. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if you know if you if you ran. I don't know if you run, if you ran these trains faster, they'd be making, they might actually turn a profit. I mean, then we'll talk about this in the next slide. Um, but with, with all these cost cutting measures, passenger train deficits only got larger, right? Mm. They lost a hundred million dollars on Whoa. passenger trains <laughs> in 1968, Bad, right? $5 million in 1969, $131 million in 1970. But again, I, and, and, and the Penn Central is petitioning the Interstate Commerce Commission to eliminate these trains, huge amounts of them. The official plan was to eliminate all passenger service west of Harrisburg and Buffalo, and they were denied over and over again. Um, uh, it, as, as Uday said, uh, Perlman was famous for this. He cut all the New York Central premier trains he could before the merger. Uh, Saunders... Uh, Stuart Saunders, the Pennsylvania Railroad guy, was a little bit more sentimental, and he was also friends with Lyndon Baines Johnson. That'll do it. Yeah. Ah. And, you know, this, is, uh, th- this was significant because I believe Stuart Saunders was the first uh, person with ties to the Democratic Party to head the Pennsylvania Railroad. It was a very, very Republican institution for its entire existence. Um, sort of crew cuts kind of vibe, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep, mainline. And, and yeah, yeah, Saunders was 
a Southern Democrat. Um, ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is this is all we needed. After all, was a little bit of corruption in the right mm -hmm. places. Tyler, great Once again, I'm back to like longism. Bring back Huey Long. Bring <laughs> yeah. back oh wildly corrupt liberalism. Um, now, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program demanded high-speed rail, and Stuart Saunders obliged him. The Great Society was so fucking weird, man. There's, there's, there's a little bit of like liberal hauntology there to be like, no, there was this guy who he wanted like everybody to be uh, riding around on high speed rail. Uh, there would be total racial harmony. Yes. Uh, every, everybody would be provided for, and like there would be a strong welfare state. And then also, uh, we, we would be like Vietnam would be a napalm crater. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Should laugh at that. <laughs> like, I mean, genuinely though, there's there's so much critique wrong. of liberalism where you can be like, "Huh, it seems like uh, a lot of the uh, the Atlee government's uh, formation of the NHS was based off of us, like laundering the proceeds of colonialism and getting out of empire as quickly as possible before the bill came due." Uh, so, same with this, you could just be like, "Oh yeah, we 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 almost had in the United States this like social liberal democratic society that." Like also depended on psychotic anti-communism. Yes. So in August 1964, the Hikari Super Express Shinkansen traveled between Tokyo and Osaka in four hours with a top speed of 130 mile an hour. Uh, the next year, they managed to shave a whole hour off that schedule. Right. That must be nice. The yeah, <laughs> the Jap Japanese National Railways had gambled big and it had paid off. Uh, the Shinkansen service was very popular. It was very cheap to run. It made a lot of money, right? Um, even yeah, accounting Americans for... were too too racist to Operation Paperclip. All the Japanese engineers. There you go. Um, no, well, we did we did some of them. We had, we we took some of the guys. Only the from... biological warfare. Yeah, seven thirty one guys. We we took them. <laughs> took all the war criminals, the guys who made like engines and shit, uh, and like uh, aircraft, like um, fuselages. No, I didn't want yeah, those the guys. Zero was terrific, right until you actually hit it with something. Yeah, well, yeah, no, no self-sealing fuel tanks on that one. Well, yeah, yeah but who's who's gonna do the fucking thatch weave on a train? You know, <laughs> you never know. You, you, you must you're be trying to any scenario, you're, Alice. You're trying to get from Tokyo to Osaka, and a guy in a fucking Curtis Hellcat strafes you. Yeah, you never know. I think one of the one of the fun things about the Shinkansen is is actually planned before World War II and significantly delayed ah. by that. When they were planning mm. it, you know, the the basic uh, the basic ideas were there: it's a high speed train, standard gauge, probably. Um, and it would, um, you know, run on, it would, it, you know, but they didn't know what kind of traction to use, right? If, if World War II had not happened, we might have gotten a steam-powered Shinkansen. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this, 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 uh, this was an incredible success, even accounting for severe cost overruns, and money from the service was able to offset Japan National Railway's losses elsewhere. Let a lot of Japan keep its huge railway network intact, you know, to a larger extent than pretty much anywhere. You know, even today, if you have a, you live in a tiny, tiny farming community in Japan, at the end of a branch line, you're probably still getting six or seven trains a day. Wow. Right? <laughs> um, the Lyndon Johnson administration sees this. And, and says, "What well, we should we should do this? What we should do is nuke Cambodia. Yeah, <laughs> also that, <laughs> right? 
Um, now, yes, Saunders... I know Nixon did the Cambodian incursion. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah, LBJ is like busy stirring a big fifty-five gallon drum of styrofoam, soaking in gasoline, and he just looks over. And he's like, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> um, you know, they want that. They want that. Maybe we could do it better than the Japanese, even. And Saunders, of course, he wants LBJ to approve the Penn Central merger, right? So there's some horse trading that goes on here, and Saunders agrees, all right, we'll, we'll try your high-speed rail stuff. Um, so the High-Speed Ground Transportation Act was passed in 1965, and the Pennsylvania Railroad, now soon to be the Penn Central, was going to be the gracious benefactor of the government's plan for high-speed rail by way of trains called the Metro Liners. Oh, right? yes. Oh. And this and this solves your like upcoming Penn Central problem of like uh, all of your passenger rail is going to become catastrophically unproductive and um, unprofitable because you can just do the same trick that Shinkansen did. Uh, exactly. You just go Kansen. just just go faster. Now, the the Takedo Shinkansen success was based on new infrastructure, really simple operations, reliable and proven technology, and None of those qualities applied to the Metro Liners. <laughs> um, the Metro Liners. I, I see. I see a, a little difference here between the paper and the photograph. I was going to see. There's there's a number of these renders of the the ad the advertising wow, for the Metro Liners. Copy. They've just taken train. taken the italics off of it. Come yeah, exactly. Earth, baby. You, you look at the just actual Metro Liner. Us. You know, and you see it's it's this flat-fronted thing, um, and it's going on this right-of-way, which is, you know, covered in dirt and boxes. And shit. Uh, yeah. You see this this caboose back here that's slightly crooked. Um, oh, fuck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the air thick with coal haze. Man, exactly. remember the future? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, this was it. Yes. Um, and this is... The, the the metro liners would be faster. They'd be rated for 160 miles an hour, right? And they'd revolutionize travel specifically between Washington, D.C. and New York City, right? Which is one of those markets where it was fairly clear to everyone that rail could be competitive with air travel, right? Hmm. Yeah, especially now that you have, like, um, uh, Penn Station and Grand Central, you can, like, you arrive in the city rather than, like, fucking... Whatever bullshit outside of it. Yeah, exactly. Idle wild field. Yeah. <laughs> um I hope I hope we never build any massive airports in like more or less the center of the city to try and remedy this because that would be disastrous. And, and then we have to rebuild them like every fifteen years or some crap. And perhaps we could, we could so name much, it after like a governor or something. They mm. spent so much fucking money on those airports. I I I don't know where <sighs> they get it all. <laughs> Police, uh, yeah. I don't know, the civil acid forfeiture, probably. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we seized this drug dealer's international airport. Yep. <laughs> so, the Bud Company delivered the first Metro Liners in September 1967. They started testing them between Jenkintown and West Trenton on the Reading Railroad, right? And it was pretty clear to everyone, these things have some bugs, right? Yeah. Just one or two, though, right? Yeah, just a couple. The propulsion system broke a lot. Um, the controls were unreliable. Not good on a train. 
Um, and the panographs, the bits that drop current from the wires above, the panographs uh, drew current unevenly because they were bouncing off the wires because the wires <laughs> had been installed in the 30s. Hell <laughs> uh, yeah, Alice. I mean, that's, that's, not, that's not a terrible problem. I mean, we've talked before about how, like, Railroad electrification is good because, like, although it's not perfect, a lot of the infrastructure like already exists. Um, so at least you you have to like fuck with the wires a little bit, but at least there are yeah. still wires there. Exactly, and you know if they if they had spent a little bit of money to modernize the wires, which they're only just getting around to now, um, <laughs> it would um you wouldn't have so much of a problem. Um, but you also had worse problems with sort of the. This is new modern equipment, but it has to interact with old, busted up equipment, right? Ah, this is familiar to me as an English person. Much with that, much with the APT, uh, the advanced passenger train, where you have to do like fucking uh, janky uh, in cab signaling to try and stop you riding into the back of a goods train at one hundred and sixty miles an hour. Yes. Uh, oh yeah, no. Okay, I'm getting the shakes from this now. Yeah. Good. Okay. Okay. Well, I did some of their first high speed testing between Trenton and New Brunswick on the Northeast Corridor, right? And they hit 164 miles an hour as they went through Princeton Junction. And then what happened to the neighboring train's windows, Roz? The commuter (laughs) train on the next track had all its windows sucked out by the pressure drop. So Jesus, I, I used to get nervous back being on trade, like a back being train, like back <laughs> train. I used to get nervous being like two steps back from the yellow line on a suburban train platform when a Eurostar came through. The idea that like it just sucks off your train to the extent that all of the windows go is uh mm, mm, yeah. don't care for that at all. You got good. that she'd give that turbo liner dome. Yeah, they, they call it Spirit of Nancy Reagan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she wasn't. She wasn't even first lady yet. I don't know why they called it that. Yeah. Uh, she had already. She was already well known for earlier work. Uh, <laughs> hell yeah, Legend Squad. <laughs> we don't miss you, Nancy, but we do miss the jokes about you. Uh, whatever. Moving on. Yeah. We're a sophisticated <laughs> podcast. So anyway, after after this incident, the trains were limited to 120 miles an hour. 160 miles an hour was out. Here would be a good point to note also that, you know, despite all their flaws, the Metroliner's schedules are about equivalent to what the Acela does today. Um, Yeah, it's embarrassing. It's quite a depressing commentary on a number of things, um, but certainly on, on, you know, how we have, well, first, the amounts we've invested in, and also how you invested in, and the results from which, you know, the results we've gleaned from our investments. Yeah, they kind of speak for themselves, huh? Yeah, yeah, and there are a lot of reasons for that. It's not just sort of planning things, or you know. Yeah, and the, the primary one for is being is being too much of a pussy to suck <laughs> an entire train's <laughs> windows out every time you go past it multiple times a day. Fuck yeah, they can't take a joke. Anyone standing on Fuck a platform, you go past. Yeah, absolutely. The, th- the thing, the thing about the Metroliner is that the United States of America engaged in a multi-million-dollar, multi-year program to fuck around and then refused to find out. Yes, there was also there was also in this era um, a lot more tolerance for speeding. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was. <laughs> well, sometimes not so great results. Yes. Um. So anyway, uh, the Johnson administration wanted these trains in service 
before Johnson was out of office. Um, because he had elected not to re- run again. Uh, Nixon was coming into office next, right? So these were pressed into service after only six months of testing. Um, now, Penn Central had spent $21 million for 50 Metroliner cars, and they spent $23 million on roadbed improvements, right? So that's like improvement to track, right? Um, the Metroliner service was inaugurated January 16th, 1969, four days before LG- LBJ was going to leave. And at the buzzer, love it. Yeah. Um, and the service was actually a great success, right? The new cars were clean. The heating and air conditioning work. Usually. Again, those two things that were not features on other Penn Central trains. Um, <laughs> schedule was competitive about three hours from New York to Washington, but the cars themselves were kind of lemons, right? Um, the, about 25 to 30% of the cars were out of service at any given time for maintenance and repairs, right? And of course, reduce the number of scheduled services possible. Um, and of course that means you sold less tickets, right? Um, eventually the cars were limited to a hundred miles an hour. Um, and that obliviated the speed advantage that they had. Um, because one of the 1930s vintage GG one locomotives could also go that speed with conventional equipment. Um, you know, old, old heavyweight cars that were from 1911 or whatever. Um, (laughs) a lot of which were still around. Why um, why did they limit it again that far? Um, I think it was it was just issues with at higher speeds. Um, I don't remember exactly, but I think I think it was just they weren't reliable once they got <sighs> over about a hundred miles an hour. Um, so yeah. Um, but this the the Metroliner service was still you know it proved that if you invested money in passenger infrastructure ridership would go up. Yeah, people right? like to take the train if it's nice and it gets them where they need to go quickly and efficiently and safely and in a way that doesn't make you want to kill yourself and everyone around you. Right. Uh, no no railroad has ever learned this lesson since. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Except in Japan. Except uh, in Japan. <laughs> yes. Where they, I mean they make boatloads of money off the railroad there, just transporting passengers. Um, no. The Swiss? No, uh, I heard Swiss, I think. I couldn't Oh, oh I, I said Swiss, so I was like, they, they also... Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they, they, it's, where, it's really they do uh, trains. environmentally unfriendly, though, uh, because they, they rely on stolen Jewish gold to power the locomotives. Just shoveling gold bars into a boiler. <laughs> yeah, see, Switzerland has a very low uh, rate of coal deposits, and so therefore they had to use alternative methods such as gold-powered steam locomotives. <laughs> so yeah, uh, gold-fired. Now, yeah, the Metroliner <laughs> gold-fired. Sorry. <laughs> so the Metroliner saw increased passenger uh, revenue because it was the only passenger service Penn Central invested in. Um, but I say only, I mean, only, I don't think Penn Central ever bought any passenger cars. I don't think they ever, um, really? yeah, damn dude. I mean, this was, this was a real bad time to be manufacturing passenger rail equipment in America. Um, cause no one bought anything except for states. 
because Penn Central is also obligated to run a bunch of commuter trains. Right? Looking cool as hell. Oh, yeah. So you had a couple, like, really large operations in Philadelphia, New York City, Boston, uh, and some smaller operations in Chicago and Detroit, actually. Um, you know, they, 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 these all, these were big, complex, labor-intensive operations that all lost money, right? Um, but you couldn't get rid of them because the cities in question would explode if you did. Right. <laughs> Albeit we are now into the Nixon years where, where the White House is kind of like, well, maybe. Well, yeah, that's true. Um, well, uh, the cities had a certain amount of agency, though. They, they stepped in and prevented that from happening, right? Mm. So, like, uh, by around 1969, most of the commuter equipment was 50 or 60 years old, right? So this is, um, right here is a MP54 that was probably built sometime between like 1911, 1913. These ran until the 80s. Um, <laughs> these, these heavyweight cars here on the Valparaiso dummy, uh, these were probably built about 1909. Um, you had some newer cars, especially on the New Haven. So this Bud RDC is probably, I don't know, 50s, 60s-ish. Um, but a lot of the equipment was just really old. Um, so it's all, it's all busted. The heating doesn't work. You're, you don't have air conditioning on anything, right? Oh. Uh, you have these sort of rattan seats with like collapsing springs. Windows are all jammed. They might be jammed open or shut. Um, <laughs> you, you, you know, the trains are unreliable. They broke down all the time. They got delays, but hundreds of thousands of people relied on these commuter trains. And a lot of the cities wanted to improve surf, uh, service because it was intolerable. Right. Mm. So states initially and also some newly formed agencies like Southeast Pennsylvania Transportation Authority and uh. SEPTA, right? They fund improvements to commuter rail operations, right? So like the SEPTA and the state of New Jersey bought new stainless steel commuter cars. New York City bought new cars for service on the Hudson line and Harlem lines. This is working out great for for the Penn Central because they don't have to spend any money on this shit. They're just being subsidized. Yeah, they're just being subsidized. Right. They they can just say, well, you know, if you want better service, you, you got to pay for it. <laughs> Give us your <laughs> fucking money. Yeah. Um, and you know, the cities start paying for improved infrastructure. Uh, you know, and they they improve stations, they improve maintenance facilities, they start contracting with Penn Central to run the trains because Penn Central doesn't want to run them. Uh. On, uh of uh, on their own right um and penn central took this opportunity to grift like hell <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking tell yes. me about some grifting all right so yes. take for example the philadelphia to harrisburg main line right pennsylvania's mm. main line uh there were 12 septa funded commuter trains that ran in the morning and evening a couple state supported trains from harrisburg to philadelphia as well as a small number of long-distance trains. This is, again, a four-track main line, but they also have huge amounts of, like, heavy coal drags. You have heavy manifest trains carrying, you know, volume products, like big coils of steel, right? Uh, you're, you're just all this crap that, you know, pounds the hell out of the track, right? Um, and all the cars are, of course, busted to hell. Um, you know, so everything's... You got, like, flat wheels, you know, everything which is adding extra wear to the track. Yep. Um, now, when, when the bill comes for the commuter service, 
who's to say whether the commuter trains or the freight trains are doing damage to the track? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Perfect. Yeah. No notes. So Penn Central is taking the government for all it was worth here. You know, it's like all this, all this maintenance. That's the government's problem now, and you know. It's maybe, still... maybe there was one <laughs> extremely heavy guy on this commuter train. Freakishly yes, fat, he, he, he like a bicycle. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Maybe we had to transport a fat man's bicycle now outweighed all of this Bethlehem steel. Yeah, and, and, and Saunders, Stuart Saunders, to his credit, he thought you know if we had a well-funded tra- passenger train system, it might eventually turn a profit. Um, you know, but he knew the funding was not coming. So they didn't pursue it beyond what the government was willing to subsidize. Um, and then Al Perlman, of course, he, he didn't want anything to do with passenger service at all. He actually, he actually went in when Saunders showed him the numbers for the Takedo Shinkansen. He actually was like, ah, these are all fake. Um, <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> fake news. Uh, fake yeah. news, yeah. Uh, when his own son, his own son commuted daily from Bucks County, just outside of Trenton, New Jersey, to New York City, right? His own son complained to him about the reliability, reliability and quality of service, right? And Perlman said, well, if you don't like it, yeah, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't like it, walk. <laughs> oh, <fuck>. Okay. <laughs> this is an almost British level of, like, spite here. It's like, yeah, don't, don't like it, it's a door. Yeah. It's shit. I know it's shit. I don't, it's just like <laughs> great, perfect. No notes. No, no, none. All right, Uday put this in. This is a great diagram. What the fuck is this, dude? Ooh, one morning, oh, Gregor never... Sansa awakes from terrible <laughs> sleep to find himself transformed into a Penn Central freight service guide. This is the sort of thing I spend like hours when I should be sleeping just staring at. Um, it's like a madness rune. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've been podcasting now for four hours straight. Someone is gonna have to tell me what I'm looking. Oh, it's a freight service guide. Yes, yes. essentially what so it is. Do is you have the the key to this? Is there some sort of uh, ancient and unspeakable force I got to defeat? <laughs> yeah, can you can you can you read these ancient like, pictograms? Am I, you, am I doing like twelve <laughs> labors of Hercules here? I think I think the answer here would have to be I think zoom in because like, there are labels on all these things. Tell me but they're yeah. like tiny. I'll fucking kill you. I, I'll put I'll put I'll send you guys zoom a in with so what? my it. fragile human eyes. <laughs> oh, I'm put, so your, put your face old, very close to the screen. I'm Maybe so old. No. So the, the thing the thing you have to know about Uday, listener, is that he is six years old, and therefore all he of is. the like various parts of his body, like his eyes, still work. We, yeah. on the other hand, are yeah. all seventy five years old. <laughs> I can't Oh, dude, I, I am so close to my monitor right now. <laughs> all right, all right. So this one is Cleveland. Yeah. Um, what? This one. This one's Wilkes Barre. Oh, yeah. it's a fucking okay. So it's like it's, it's like a, it's a tube schematic. map. It doesn't it's bear a, any like resemblance yeah. to the geography. Yeah. It's like it's yeah. It's basically. You feel um, like you're taking crazy pills. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is essentially what this this map is um, is it's a a chart of all of Penn Central's scheduled um, mainline freight trains as of I believe 1968 because yeah the New Haven's not on here um, and this is a you know it's a lovely diagram and it and it certainly has sort of 
at least suggest that they they knew what they were doing and they had this sort of really solid plan for how they were going to operate their railroad and they had all these fancy train symbols and they had schedules with like minutes on them and you know it, it all is, is the stuff of, of like well-managed corporations problem with it is it's you know relatively misleading um the pen ah, you're, tell- I- you're telling me this is like a 1944 like german offensive plan i've used i've used my beautiful yeah, yeah yeah i've used my beautiful very sharp colored pencils and i've like designed i've drawn out like a perfect arc of where we're going to attack and then you you go to like the actual guys who are going to do it, and it's a seventy-year-old man and four twelve-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It is it, well, in, in multiple meanings of the word manifesting, um, mm. and ah. and <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> but the, I think what you know what one can can take away from this, or at least take away from the gap between this and reality, is that you know turning more towards Penn Central itself as an organization. Um, they're even sort of setting aside all the structural factors that constrain their ability to 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 perform well and to 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 do sort of operate effectively as a as a as a railroad. They were also just kind of bad at running their own railroad. Um, you know, it's a theme. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So one of so the whole premise of the Penn Central merger was that by combining the Pennsylvania and the New York Central, you would realize large cost savings by reducing duplicate infrastructure, um, du- duplicate terminal facilities in big cities, um, and duplicate train mileage. So rather than running you know two trains between I don't know like Indianapolis and or okay, there's many more than two trains between Indianapolis and St. Louis, but rather than sort of running large number of trains between Indianapolis and St. Louis, you'd run a slightly smaller number of trains on one lines instead of two and thus save money. Um, and that's sort of the whole, that's the whole driving principle of, of this merger and all the other so-called parallel mergers that happened around that time. Now, the thing with these parallel mergers, though, is it's not like you just wake up one morning and all of a sudden the Pennsylvania Railroad and the New York Central Railroad are just one thing. Um, you know, you got to spend money to save money. And that, as it so happens, was not always one of the, the strong points of, of the Penn Central. They did end up spending a lot of money to make the systems work as one, um, but under sort of significant pressure to realize savings from the merger as quickly as possible, they did things um, quite quickly and without a lot of planning. I believe they actually ended up sort of discarding most of their operating plan um, just a short while before the merger and decided they were going to make all decisions essentially ad hoc. Yes. Um, and that was, that was mean, one of the first <laughs> things they did. Yeah. The expression no plan survives contact with the enemy is not typically applied to railroads. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's one of these things where you, you can just imagine some, some, some startup today talking about how they're having, have, they have this sort of flexible production scheme and they're going to operate oh, yeah, you know, they're disrupting. synergistically or whatever and they're yeah, they're, yeah. They're disrupting what it means to be a railroad but in this case they're just disrupting the railroad and that didn't end up well for them um but know, not only the consolidation you would expect you can clearly see is not working you can see okay here we've got yards in new jersey there's two of them right then you got a third yard in new york and, and um, note that the box with the yards in New Jersey has like four or five different yards in the box. Yeah, there's like I don't. I guess it's it's illegible at this resolution, but within and then that if, box, if you want to ship from Potomac yeah. Yard here in Washington D.C., of course you have to actually go through Selkirk up here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, because that just makes so much sense, and and it's it's one it's one of these things where, um, 
I think, first of all, it gets back to some of the things we were talking about earlier about, you know, the importance of high quality service for railroads being competitive and the importance of network planning for railroads being competitive. Um, but also, you know, it, you really, there was no alternative um, to just spending a lot of money to get these things done. And in a cash-strapped situation, as they were in at that time, um, they really were feeling a pinch. Um, and so you had things, you know, where you they just decide to consolidate some department or some terminals and then all hell would break loose and trains would get stuck on main lines for hours and it was just bad. And you also had things where sort of pre-merger planning just wasn't done well. Um, so, you know, one example that, Oh, I, got, I think the men who love trains talks about one of the books written about this era in American railroading is that yeah. um, one of the big sort of planning concepts in for the merger was that they were going to restructure their network around a sort of uh, a small number of very modern, very computerized freight yards um, in hmm. Selkirk and Elkhart, um, Indiana, in Conway near Pittsburgh near Harrisburg, a whole bunch of these. Um, and part of those plans was building a few of these new yards, one in Selkirk, which the New York Central did build and it opened in 69. Yep. And then there was also, there was going to be one new one in Columbus, Ohio called Buckeye Yard. Um, and as it's recounted in, in that book, um, the Pennsylvania Railroad was supposed to start building Buckeye Yard well before the merger began. So it'd be ready to go to get these consolidation plans rolling so they could realize the savings quicker and so yeah, on and, and so forth. And they're just like, no, I don't and, exactly. do that. And they were like, they're yeah. like, no, no, sorry. No. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not doing that. So then, uh, the Penn even, Central after was, the, even after the merger, like when 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 Perlman went to the board to get uh, approval to build the yard, um, everyone on the Pennsylvania side just got real mad at him. Yeah, like, yeah. you can't spend money. Yeah, spend exactly. <laughs> Especially not on our part of the railroad, because mm-hmm. um, of course Columbus was historically sort of somewhat more of a PR. Yeah, it's that tough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, the PR executives before the merger said, oh, it's actually a bad place for a yard. It's like, no, it's not. Um, but anyway, so you had you these coordination failures that just that plagued the company and made it sort of both ever harder to consolidate infrastructure. Also just made it dependent on a bunch of really ancient and expensive to operate lines, yards, and what have you. Um, and, you know, between that and between sort of the various planning failures that accompany the merger, um, and of course sort of the very basic coordination issues that I think you guys talked about in the last episode, like nobody really thought about how to educate the sort of clerks on how to, you know, understand the other systems geographies and how to get the computers to talk to each other properly. All these coordination failures ended up really doing a lot of bad for the system. Now layer on top of that, um, the 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 widespread tendency at that time to sort of treat train schedules as suggestions rather than things that really should be followed. Um, and you have a system where you know, aside from maybe a few high priority trains that someone actually did make some effort to run properly, um, trains are just being run sort of on vibes. Um, yeah. And yeah. those schedules <laughs> yeah. just vibes, dude. Well, exactly. It, it, exactly. It definitely looks like there's quite a lot of trains scheduled. And I'm sure on some days, half of these ran. And oh, on other yeah. days, <laughs> you know, twice that many ran. <laughs> yeah. One of, my, one of my favorite um, stories from this era is actually from a different era, the Erie Lackawanna. Um, there is some account I dug up some in some dark corner of the internet once about the operations at sort of the west end of the Erie Lackawanna, which sort of had a similar geography to the Penn Center, ran right from New Jersey to Chicago, but somehow managed to miss a lot of the population centers in between those two places. Um, but in the west end of the railroad, they had like, you know, they came up with this whole fancy train plan um, in the 70s. And um, 
if you actually went on the railroad um, on on many days, you'd see that train plan wasn't only not being followed, but like dispatchers were just like making up trains, like oh, you know, we're not going to run, you know, NY one hundred today. We're going to run this other train that goes from these two other places. We're going to call it like I don't know, Carl, AB, AB, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're just yeah, we're, we're just going to we're going to make stuff up and run and the we're trains run that Carl, way. And that's, yeah. that's going to be fine. And, gonna and be we're going to do it because we can run a longer train that way, or we can clear out this yard of cars that have been here for a week that way. Or whatever else, you know, some local manager wanted to do. And, you know, those managers, I guess, on some level are just responding to the information incentives before them. But, my God, that's not a way to run a sort of uh, a railroad, much less a, a organization trying to compete with trucks for, for, for relatively high-value traffic. You know, I, you think of the railroad as a highly structured, hierarchical organization, but it's remarkable how similar it is to sort of an anarchist commune. <laughs> including that no one wants to do chores. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, my job in the anarchist commune will be boxcar appraiser. Yes. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the dispatcher. We can't all be dispatchers, guys. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna run my train, and I'm gonna call it what I want, and I'm gonna make it yeah. do what I want. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna run my train. It's gonna be big. It's gonna be purple. <laughs> and, I, and I'm gonna park it on the middle of the main line to get lunch for four hours. You'll be running all in South Philly. In yeah. fairness, they do still do that. Oh yeah, <laughs> as they should, frankly. That's true, yeah. it, it'll get yeah. there. Shut the hell up. Yeah. <laughs> you still see people uh, like parking the train at a, next to a gas station to yeah. go and use the bathroom. <laughs> Speaking of which, I, speaking of which, I'll be right back. Oh, yeah, I, we're I could I could use a bathroom break. Yeah, oh my god, yeah, should we take five? Uh, oh, shut that up. sounds good to me. All right. <laughs> well, empties east, empties west. Yeah, how's it going, guys? Good, going pretty good. I peed. So did nice. I. I got another. Yeah, beer. I also did that. Where were we? Showing uh, you're on the you're on the main line and there's a bathroom. I don't even know what slide we're on anymore. Oh, we're on the, the something got, about railroads. Yeah, something uh, about railroads. Oh, we're looking at my charts again. Yes, yes. I love charts. Sort of the, the entire theme of my Twitter account. <laughs> 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 Fucking getting heckled and it's not even on a live show. Jesus yeah. Christ! <laughs> oh, so you can hear them laughing in the background. That's so yeah. funny. Yeah, I, like, I, I, have, I am blessed with a single room and my door is shut. I guess this is something about Harvard's soundproofing policies. Alright, Uday, what yeah. I want you to do yes. is take a knife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here's, ask, my, here's my reveal, I am deadly scared of knives, but continue. And ask those people to yes. be quiet, uh -huh. and if they don't, you simply See, I did the bleep for you, Roz. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you escalate. You escalate. <laughs> escalate. escalate. You make them have a nice time. Pause them to have a nice time, Uday. Amazing. Thank you. I, I will keep this all in mind. Thank you. Yeah. No, I love, I love my roommates. I'm glad they're having fun in their own way. No, I, I wish yeah. them nothing but pain, ill, and well. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will shield them with my life. All right. So they had an operating plan. They didn't stick to it. Yeah. Yeah. As did, frankly, as did most railroads at that time, but, you know. This is true. Yeah, yeah but most railroads at the time had more than, like, a few hours to keep the lights on for any given exactly, day. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And also, there's... They weren't this big or complicated. Yeah. Mm. Or, or frankly, this bad at it, either. Penn Central really takes things to the next level. 
they're disrupting disruption, so to speak. Um, and of course, they had, they had more than this going on because they had diversification. Hell yes. Yeah, uh, it's yes. business, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our faith. Poor airlines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we talked about executive jet in the last episode, but there was more going on. Oh, so much poor and blackjack airline. Yeah, so <laughs> from the beginning of the Penn Central, investors thought this is a gold-plated safe investment, much like its predecessor, the Pennsylvania Railroad, which was invincible, yeah, it, as it's, we know. It's, right? <laughs> you, you, you got the Pennsylvania Railroad, and then you got a whole other railroad in there. That's two railroads that's for two the price railroads. of one that, railroad. That's fucking great shit right there. Cast uh, iron <laughs> dividend every year. Uh, you can put your pension fund in this. You can do whatever the fuck you want. And a lot of people did. Mm. And Uh-oh. it was uh, it, this was all being kept this way by our friend David Bevan, right? And Bevan, as we mentioned before, didn't talk to anyone about anything nope. ever. Nope. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't like Saunders. He really didn't like Perlman. Um, didn't really having talk social to, anxiety. Yeah, I mean the way the way the company was set up w- with regard to finances essentially was that Be- Bevan uh, got the money. And then Perlman spent it. Mm. And Bevan was very unhappy with the way Perlman was spending the money. <laughs> but Bevan also had his own way of spending money, which didn't look like spending money. Ah, um, that, that, one, one of the... <laughs> ah, the corruptomatic, yes. I was, I was about yeah. to say, yeah, indirect methods. Um. Yeah. <laughs> and the stuff he spent it on was not railroad stuff. Was it horse? Uh, Gotta be at least a partially, little right? Oh, a little bit. Come on, yeah. man. Dream big. So Bevan had a really great relationship with all the banks. You know, there was a whole lot of banks back then. Um, a lot of them had board uh, had members of their boards of directors were also on the Penn Central board of directors. You know, there's all this sort of interlocking Philadelphia high society thing. Bevan was a little more active in Philadelphia high society than uh um uh, Perlman certainly, and about the same Wonder as Saunders. Why. Yeah. Mm. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. No. Mm. Well, it was partially because Perlman didn't attempt to join any of them, and uh, also okay. partly yeah, because no, Perlman. Blame the Jew. Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> no. The other <laughs> thing you. was Thank that he you. was you want to Jewish. Do a program? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, no, he was You're only Polish. We have to sit together in the in the camps, Roz. But <laughs> I, I I I think I think um uh Perlman had like one Philadelphia High Society friend, and that was like uh, Annenberg. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Uh, well, that's why he stayed up in New York. Understandable. Um, now, so he has a great, Bevan has a great relationship with the banks and the bankers, and due to archaic laws differentiating a railroad from other types of corporations, Penn Central financing came under purview of the Interstate Commerce Commission instead of the Securities and Exchange Commission. And the ICC had a lot more tolerance for creative accounting, right? <laughs> On the one hand, they do make you run a shitload of unprofitable trains all the time. On the other, they do allow you to be personally very corrupt. Yes. So, so who's to say if it's good or not? Right. Exactly. Absolutely. Diversification program gave Bevan an opportunity to hide what he needed to hide and emphasize what he needed to emphasize, give the investors the impression that the Penn Central was a strong, healthy company with great financial prospects in the future, right? And this was because um, the, the assumption was on the Pennsylvania side, listen, we just need to keep borrowing until the company starts making money. 
Oh, that which it is will a... inevitably do any oh, day now. Wow, what a what a recipe for success. Yeah. Yes. Shades of Uber. Mm. And, and 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 yeah, I mean, now that's a positive aspect for it. Yeah, it's good to yeah. lose money for some it's, reason. It's good to lose a whole lot of money. This is it's before we invented startups. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um Bevan also had another goal which has been reinforced by a century and a quarter of Pennsylvania Railroad bureaucracy and tradition, which any self-respecting executive of the standard railroad of the world would pursue at all costs. He's going to pay the dividend. You got to. You got to do it. You got to pay the man. dividend. Um, so subsidiaries gave the railroad a chance to earn large amounts of income on paper while not actually earning any money. So. For instance, one of their subsidiaries was the Great Southwest Land Company. And, you know, they developed and sold off land. And that just sounds hideously yeah. corrupt. Oh, yeah. yeah that's the yeah. kind of thing that you would uncover in, like, a film noir, right? This is, this is, uh, this is a company that's responsible for, like, Phoenix, Arizona existing. Oh, unforgivable. <laughs> and they, you know, developed and sold off land, which was paid for by the buyer over a long period of time, right? That's how a mortgage works. but they recorded the sale in full on their balance sheet, which in turn was recorded on the Penn Central's balance sheet. Right? Sometimes I tell it like it isn't, and that's called lying. Yeah. <laughs> Some subsidiaries like Buckeye Pipeline Company, which that's they not own- real. Again, all of these sound like the most like front corporation <laughs> yeah, right, to yeah. do it. So they owned both pipelines and oil refineries, and I think some uh, distribution centers, right? Uh, big tanks, right? Um, they earned money, and they earned a lot of money. Now, they were owned through what was called the Pennsylvania Company, right? And that's a subsidiary of Penn Central that in turn owns all the companies that Penn Central owns. Um, and w- during, uh, during the merger, no one could actually figure out how many companies they owned. Um, there's something like 120, 30 of them, right? Um, so the Pennsylvania company had spent $30 million to acquire control of Buckeye in 1963. And some of that was done through a stock swap, right? So through 1970, Buckeye pipeline returned $37 million to the Pennsylvania company through dividends. Hmm. But because there was a stock swap, the Pennsylvania company in turn, sent Buckeye $19 million in dividend. So, in actual I'm, cash flow turns, <laughs> by 1970, they were still um, uh, leading money, uh, lying, yeah, $12 million uh, in the hole on their best investment. Um, <laughs> lying about bleeding money? Yeah, never so want that, to do. They lost money in acquiring this incredibly p- profitable company because they're morons. But um, <laughs> because you could fiddle with the numbers, Bevan made it look really great, right? Oh. So overall, this diversification program made the finances complicated enough that they were hard to make head or tail of to anyone. Hell yeah. Except Bevan. S- security by obscurity, baby. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, no, no one really knows anything about a company's finances including people like Stuart Saunders, 
who runs the organization. This one guy yeah, who knows like, everything and won't tell it to anyone. That, that's <laughs> yeah. that's a plot point in mob movies. That's a plot point in The Untouchables. <laughs> Great movie. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. I so believe they, there was a meeting at some point between Saunders and I think somebody in the government, maybe Volpe, who was the transportation secretary, um, and he was asked how much the company was actually losing. He he essentially had to be like, I don't know. <laughs> it's unclear. There was mm -hmm. at least one meeting like that, and there was another meeting where they actually had to usher out every single Pennsylvania Railroad or Penn Central executive from the room because no one was actually supposed to know how much money the company... They, they can't let the real numbers be known. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, this is between them the real number or the propaganda number? No, no, the, the, the real number is only for Bevan and maybe oh. Saunders. <laughs> so they, you know, again, this is this is for the purpose of making the making the finances look better, so they can Bevan can still go around to the banks and borrow and borrow and borrow, get investment from anywhere he can by acquiring control of companies like Buckeye, Great Southwest, Executive Jet Aviation, uh, a wide variety of land holdings in New York City, um, including, of course, Madison Square Garden, uh, and also. People who uh, teams that used Madison Square Garden they had a large interest in the New York Knicks and the New York Islanders. Disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, $209 million flowed away from the Penn Central in return for about $56 million in dividends and asset sales. <laughs> but you, uh, you got to pay the dividends. So yeah. you, the, yep. it's fine. You, nope. you just. We made we made a great deal of money last year. Here is some, and if anyone asks you, okay, well, how much do you spend? Or how also, much do you lose? Don't worry about it. Don't worry. About um, it. Yeah, don't worry about it. Now that that's like there's there's creative <laughs> accounting, and then there's whatever the hell moving a is, single is. column from your paper ledger and eating it. <laughs> In 1969, yeah, I love the accounting technique of na 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 na. I can't hear you. Na 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 na. Om nom 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 nom. In 1969, to avoid four and a half million dollars in depreciation charges, uh, Bevan wrote off the entire passenger division. Hell yeah! <laughs> what? A, on paper, that's a hundred and twenty-six million dollar loss, but it was extraordinary, right? So you know, you weren't supposed to. You know, the investors didn't care about that, right? Why? <laughs> 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 oh, the madness. The podcast yeah. madness. That was the funniest shit I it ever is, It is kind of beautiful in its own horrifying way. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> By writing off the entire passenger division, because they never expected to make money off it any, ever again, they avoided this $4.5 million depreciation charges, and Bevan made, the, made it look like, on paper, Penn Central made $4 million. <laughs> wow! <laughs> Surely this this will this like, is amazing. be sustainable forever. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> he thrown off the passenger. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> it, it's in the trash. Yeah, no going back <laughs> now. <laughs> yeah, yep. No depreciation today. Um, in the meantime, yeah, he's he's searching for investment of any kind. One of his friends, uh, Richard King Mellon 
was like on oh, his deathbed at this point. Of the Mellon family. Of the Mellon family. Yeah, he was the guy he was really getting most of the money from. He's sort of his in into the banking world. So that, that looks of like Pittsburgh Urban Renewal fame. Yes. yes. And of yeah. BNY Mellon. If you're, mm. yeah, where I used to work and which I hope burns to the ground. Eh. Yeah. So, yeah, he's, the he's Allegheny still... Conference could be another episode of this podcast, but again. <laughs> so, yeah, he's searching for any kind of investment he can. Just keep borrowing, just keep the, the farce up, right? Because mm. um, there are a huge amount of debts due in 1970. Uh oh. Up until this point, he's still. 1970. Getting... That's yeah. like 70 years away. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a real year. Yeah. What, what year is it now? <laughs> like 19. 10 maybe at worst it's 1969 <laughs> this is like a whole fucking year away it's fine i mean the prr was so stuck in in its old ways yeah i mean i it was still very much a growth mindset right you know as opposed mm-hmm. to a rearrangement would, that needed would, to happen would you say um would you say that david bevan was um pursuing a sigma grind set yes i, I would say that I appreciate the the growth at all costs mentality. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, growth, but not through building infrastructure. But not the good kind. Yeah. No. no. We're gonna, we're gonna do some weird diversification, and that's gonna, and then a miracle will occur. Yeah. And, yeah. Oh yeah. It's like that WeWork chart. Something yeah, happens, and the line starts going up again. Yes. Turnaround. Oh, when WeWork started, just like totally rewriting their own books. Be like, no, see, this is actually how we're technically making money. <laughs> In the meantime, there's some boardroom plots developing, right? Yes, I love room. Yeah, yeah mm. me too. Saunders Especially because I'm of, delirious at this point. Uh, Saunders was sick of Perlman spending all his money. Uh, ah, what is Bevin, the, oh, so the Jew's not allowed to spend any money. Got <laughs> yes. <Right>. Oh. <laughs> Bevan was sick of Perlman spending all his money and being unable to come up with basic things like an income-based budget. Um, Perlman, Perlman, I guess, was more of a realist here in that he thought, you, you know, everything's so unpredictable, we can't work off of a budget here. <laughs> um, you know, he didn't even think it was feasible to do one. Mm. Um, well, it might expose any of the, uh, like, ocean of scams. Yes. <laughs> Uh, ocean of <laughs> if you dare add two numbers together in this railroad, the whole thing falls apart. Yes, <laughs> it requires it, it. runs entirely off uncertainty. I mean, the only thing that keeps this running is that no one knows how much money they have, and the checks just keep being cashed this is somehow. The adeptus mechanicus approach to running a railroad here. Yeah, even the banks don't know how much money they have. I. It's it's weird <laughs> how when these corporations get big enough. All of a sudden, money no longer exists as like a, a number in a bank account. It's no, just like, it just is, becomes vibes. Yeah, the, the money, yeah. it's a vibe-based budget. Um, <laughs> but Bevan was so sick of Perlman, he was threatening to resign. And that would mean his creative accounting, his skill at finance, and his relationships with the banks would be gone with them. In which case, of course, everyone would be fucked, even more than they already were. Hell yeah. Mm. Um, and Saunders doesn't like either Perlman or Bevan, but he knew, uh, given given the choice between them, he'd rather have the guy who makes the money than the guy who spends the money, right? So he starts he starts looking for a replacement. Um, you know, because again, Perlman spent too much money on 
things like railroad investments, you know, yards, roadbed equipment, physical plant, maintenance Not facilities. Not enough on horror airlines. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Also, we, also anti-Semitism. Yes, and yeah. and that money could, of course, instead be spent on scams, right? Um, I so, I am in awe. <laughs> I am truly in awe. Yeah. So he told the board. He quietly informed the board, who agreed. Perlman had to go. They bring in Paul Gorman of Western Electric as the new president of the railroad, right? Had no experience with railroading, but lots of experience with business, right? Pussy shit. On uh, (laughs) August 26, 1969, Saunders called Perlman into his office and told him the bad news. He was being kicked upstairs to be vice chairman of the board, which was, you know, a powerless position. Um, Mm. And Perlman was mad, but there was nothing he could do about it. Um, Alice Koo. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, he's not as creative as the guy from Executive Jet who came in with armed thugs. Uh, <laughs> uh, Gorman took office December 1st, 1969, and the full breadth of the Penn Central financial disaster was presented to him. Uh, Be- Bevan just told him, listen, you got to cut the hell out of expenses, right? They were going to bleed this railroad, you know, just cut everything they could. It's like it, it, it's like the sort of corporate raiding thing of uh, a hostile yeah. takeover, but from the inside. Right. Yes. Yep. Just eats itself. Yeah. Railroad I will Boris, say, maybe. Yeah. I, I will say one thing on the on the resistance to invest is that that wasn't actually all that uncommon of a viewpoint at that time. Um, if I remember correctly, um, when the Burlington Northern, one of the Western Railroads at this time, was trying was thinking about building their a new line into the Powder River Basin, which is the big coal production area in Wyoming that became yeah. just an absolute money printer for railroads in, in the decades to come. Um, when when the BN was initially considering that um, and eventually decided oh. to do it, one of their members of their board, I think, resigned in protest. Because they were so convinced that railroads were a, were a dying industry, and this sort of decision to invest in not just the railroad but expansion of the railroad was just completely sort of harebrained. Um, they are a dying so, industry, but there are dying industry. Goddamn yeah. it! <laughs> yeah, it's a dying industry, and I'll be damned if we do anything to change that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna make sure the ship sinks faster. Yes, with more money for me left in it. We're bailing, but we're bailing into the boat. Into the boat, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so Paul Gorman worked with Bevan to build a budget that he liked. Um, Bevan was happy. He finally found a guy he could work with. 1970 looked like it could be the year the Penn Central turned a real profit instead of one that was just on paper. As long as the banks kept lending ludicrous amounts of money to them and there are no catastrophes. Uh, uh-oh. What, 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 what year were all of those debts to? 1970. Okay, what year is it now? 1969. Okay. Now it's 1970. Oh, no. January 1970. Oh, shit. Oh, fuck. The winter of 1969 to 1970 was one of the worst the railroad ever faced. Snowdrifts covered the railroad's entire area of service until April. Um, fuck. Switches froze, yards were jammed. Selkirk Yard didn't move a car for three weeks. What they do? <laughs> just sat there and like they just sat yeah, there. So they jerk each other off. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. In co- in, in so the first, literally running a train. Yeah. <laughs> in the first quarter of 1970, 
the railroad was losing on average a million dollars a day. That's not good. That's not good. I mean, that yeah. pales in comparison to like whatever Uber loses today. But, you know, back then money meant something. Um, <clears throat> but despite this, the banks kept lending because nothing could break the railroad. Right? No, um, it's the Pennsylvania Railroad sort yeah, of still. Yeah, and that still, means that yeah. it, it has to it has to pay a dividend every year and it has to and live forever. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's the reputation is in this case worth more than money. Um which will prove to be, I think, a fatal mistake. Yeah. Well, in April twenty second, the numbers that they had to report came out. The railroad had lost a hundred and two million dollars. Paul Gorman didn't know what to make of it. That kind of loss was unheard of and impossible, right? And 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 once this this these numbers were reported, Penn Central stock, of course, plunged, you know, and almost caused the recession. Oh, <laughs> damn. Yeah, single handedly. Yeah, single handedly, yeah. One guy. One guy almost caused the recession. Um, I'm going down, I'm taking all yeah. you fuckers with me. <laughs> Disinvite me from your horror airlines conference, will yeah. you? <laughs> yeah. uh, and this is when the banks got mad. Uh, and oh, no. the board of directors finally got the message. Their finance committee, which was formed mostly of railroad outsiders, called Bevan Saunders and Gorman in for a chat, right? John Seabrook, owner of International... You imagine Utility. being right now? Just yeah. like, hey, 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 fuck yeah. you. Oh, not my problem anymore. <laughs> Thrown clear of the wreckage. Yeah. <laughs> John Seabrook of International Utilities Incorporated, owner of 500,000 shares of the Penn Central, outlined on behalf of the other five members of the finance committee, what was going to happen? They were going to come clean on the finances. Penn Central was going to get bailed out by, horror of horrors, the government. Now, Seabrook implied that Penn Central needed to undergo a reorganization, as he said in his words, but he was speaking in such patrician terms that neither Bevan nor Saunders understood what was happening. Bevan thought they wanted Saunders out, and Saunders thought they wanted Bevan out. Wow. And in fact, the board wanted both of them out, but <laughs> took no action to remove them or demand their resignation. Oh, these fucking country club idiots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Alice, you had a tweet today that said, y'all are the dumbest motherfuckers alive, and uh, mm -hmm. I think that's applicable here. Oh, yeah. So Bevan and Saunders just went to business as usual trying to bail out the railroad themselves. Same way the Confederacy lost the Civil War, every officer, uh, every general officer is like doing a like five paragraph order that like has a bunch of literary allusions and nobody fucking knows what to do with it. Yes. Excuse oh, me. Jesus. <laughs> Very nice. Alice, I've been recording. Uh -huh. Oh no, I'm not. I'm not mad at you. Hours. I'm not mad at you. We are we are approaching a complete I'm, breakdown in Leo Utopia. I'm, I'm I'm impressed more than anything. I, I just love you. See, this is mm. the part. This is the part Parts. of the long podcast you always do, where by complaining about how long the podcast is, you extend the time you have the podcast for. Can I tell you something that's really fucked up? I was gonna be mad if we didn't make it to three hours. <laughs> <laughs> Ten hours is my coup de grace, Ross. Yeah. This is my Mona Lisa. This is my Pieta. <laughs> <laughs>
So Saunders and Bevan at this point, they're frantically working the government and all their lines of credit respectively to come up with some money. To Is get it truly the just these two dudes doing it? Like, yeah, trying to call, like yeah. just these two dudes. No one from Penn Central is like, hey, assholes, do you want some help? It's just these two dudes. It's just two guys. Yeah, it's just two guys. Yeah. All right. I mean, we, Alice, so- we need a treatment for a buddy cop movie about this, yeah. too. Absolutely. <laughs> a buddy cop movie where the two cops hate each other. Yeah. That's <laughs> what makes it good. Saunders is fucked up because his buddy, Lyndon Baines Johnson, is no longer president, right? Nixon administration doesn't want to bail out the railroads. Um, and despite a huge interlocking of the boards of directors between the banks and the Penn Central and the massive investment in Penn Central debt the banks had, Bevan just couldn't get any money out of them anymore. Tries going abroad, going to foreign investors, doesn't get anywhere, right? And the board is, you know, fed up with them. Uh, he's, they're fed up with Bevan Saunders and even Perlman, who didn't have any power at this point. They're just mad at him in general for being yeah, there. He's like tainted by association yeah. and also being Jewish. Yes. Happens uh, to the best of us. <laughs> uh, now, the, 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 the theory under which they were going to get bailed out by the government is that Penn Central was a uh, defense contractor, technically. What? Well, because yeah. they were moved. They? <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. They moved lots of shit for the military. I mean, um, if it worked for the interstate highway system, it should work for these guys, right? Yeah, exactly. So Fair the theory point. is they can go to the Department of Defense and they can get bailed out directly by the Department of Defense without having to go through Congress. Um, but again, no one can seem to get this moving, right? On, a, on, on June 8th, 1970, you know, the penny dropped, right? The board fired bevan is that a phrase the penny dropped isn't it the yeah. other shoe drop yeah. yeah no no no. the I other shoe been... dropping is like when you expect something to happen and then it finally yeah, happens penny drop. The, the, the penny drop is like uh like uh, something you realize something mm-hmm. i think you, you could apply either here this the other true. shoe dropping is like uh i say you live in an apartment with thin walls right uh and yeah. uh, above you you hear a guy take off one of his shoes and it falls to the floor with a really loud like uh, yeah, thank you. and then you, you're just you, you are sitting there and you know oh, the other one's gonna happen shoe to drop. and you're waiting for the other shoe to drop thank that's right yeah. anytime you're waiting for the other shoe to come flying at you and you duck twice uh, George <laughs> Bush you son of a bitch yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the board wound up firing Bevan and they fired Perlman for good measure. He didn't even, he was, he was in a sinecure. He was in a job where he couldn't do anything. Oh, oh, Perlman got really mad because his contract uh, still had him as a, as a guaranteed employee of the Penn Central for another, like, three months. In which case, they could renew it or they could not re- renew it. But if they terminated it early, they'd have to pay him for ten years. Oh, gold parachute <laughs> shit, hell yeah. <laughs> and they decided to pay him for ten years. Um, it's actually the agreement all of us have on this podcast. Oh boy. Now that'd be <laughs> that's why we can't fire each other. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> the board initially wanted to kick Saunders upstairs, make him a, a, a vice chairman of the board, because there's a lot of debate about what to do with him because uh, Saunders goes to all the same social clubs as the rest of the board. Mm. And I think one guy from like U.S. Steel speaks up, something like that, and he says, look, just fire him. And then they just fire him. <laughs> <laughs> U.S. Steel, you cold-hearted bastards. Yeah. 
Um, now, yeah, Perlman pointed to his contract and said his lawyers would be in touch. Uh, Paul Gorman became CEO. Uh, Bevan, you know, he 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 took his fate with grace and dignity, right? Uh, actually, yeah, after, after merely ripping sure them did. off for like everything, down to taking the carpet from his office I with them as he leaves. Oh, that like, both, <laughs> both middle fingers up as I did it, baby. <laughs> uh, uh, he he went home and just spent that afternoon relaxing in his pool with his family. Average American boomer, yeah. just like I, I, I work defrauding my company. I have done this successfully to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. I am now emptying out the entire contents of my office bar into a bucket, drinking all of it, <laughs> drunk driving home to my family, <laughs> living in my pool for a couple of weeks. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, Thought you'd get rid of horror airlines, did you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Saunders was Saunders was crushed initially, but said to have recovered over the next couple of weeks. Um, now, with renewed confidence from the banks, the board sought a way to get money from the government, or at least some loan guarantees. Right, and as I mentioned before, the strategy was get it from the Department of Defense. You know, after, but this still wound up with some congressional hearings when Congress got wind of the fact the railroad was in bad shape and all their constit they, they were worried their constituents would lose passenger service, right? Because that's all the public cared about was the passenger service. Not like, not that every single item that you use goes by rail, passenger trains that are important. Mm -hmm. So, once these congressional hearings happened, the Department of Defense got cold feet. They said they wouldn't guarantee a loan unless a railroad aid bill also goes through. And that failed in Congress. The money was not coming. So on June 21st, 1970, the Penn Central Board authorized the petition for reorganization under Section 77 of the Bankruptcy Act. Section 77 is a special kind of bankruptcy for railroads where the trains keep running. Because trains kind of have to keep running, right? Mm. But the largest corporation in the world was now under receivership. Um, Just insane. Something yeah. that should never have happened. No, it's, yep. it's uh, completely essential to the transportation system. And, and there was no clear way out of that situation, uh, save for something unthinkable, which was nationalization. I mean, madness. But that's that's a story for another episode. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Uh, run safety third. We're gonna hit three hours, goddamn you. Oh no, we got a little bit more here. Motherfucker. Oh, yeah. we yeah, sure one do. more thing. We got yeah, one more thing. We got we gotta tell the truth about a long forgotten historical thing. This is true. Now in the next part we'll talk about, you know, Conrail nationalization without socialism, deregulation. And how Penn Central jump-started the career of one Donald John Trump. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, also, <laughs> Richard Nixon, America's most left-wing president. Yes. <laughs> things of this nature. <laughs> EPA, Conrail. Uh, yeah, yeah. Title IX. Mm-hmm. Famously pronounced, we're all Keynesians now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, he was right. We will miss him when he's gone. Now that we don't have Nixon to kick around anymore. Yes. Nixon's back! <laughs> <laughs>
On November 24th, 1971, an unidentified man hijacked a Boeing 727 aircraft um, operated by Northwest Orient Airlines. He was flying from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. Right? That was a needless fucking flight. Yeah. yeah. And back, back in the days when, again, you could just hijack a plane and they'll give you everything you wanted. Yes. Uh, he identified himself as D.B. Cooper. <laughs> so he extorted $200,000 in ransom money. That's about uh, $1,278 now. He has to be flown to Reno, Nevada. Then he parachuted to an uncertain fate over southwestern Washington partway yes. through the flight. Dead. They found his cash. Uh, my man, like at they best, pa- super low, parachuting right? super low in the like in the dark, in the cold, into trees. My yeah. man, at best, broke like both legs and died of exposure. At worst, uh, was killed instantly. Eaten by, eaten bear. by bears, eaten by bears. But they found some of his cash, so that's what happened. Well, a recent Dead. theory is that DB Cooper was William J. Smith, who was a yardmaster at the Lehigh Valley Railroad Oak Island Yard in New Jersey. It was uh, Mm -hmm. essentially a Penn Central subsidiary. Um, I mean, it was like 99% owned by Penn Central, I think. Um, And he was supposedly disgruntled at the airlines bankrupting Penn Central, you know, uh, because passenger service being uncompetitive, right? Um, You know, and also the bankruptcy took his pension with it, right? Ah, of course. Yes. So, this was reported by, I think, the Oregonian a while back. Um, uh, Some evidence here is that, well, number one, he looked similar. He had some... Mm, Are you okay there, buddy? Uh, Yeah, I'm good. He he had... never have gone over three hours (laughs) exactly. (laughs) He had some prior experience in naval aviation. And the clip-on tie that he left on the plane had medical metal particles consistent with working in a railroad yard. Huh. Right? So this is this is one of those one of those weird things. Uh now William J. Smith uh died in twenty eighteen. Oh. But he was known to disappear for like weeks at a time around that time because, you know, furloughs are pretty common, right? So, who knows? Hmm. My man's dead. Yeah. My man's dead. Also, well, he's definitely dead uh, now. Did, did, did he get fucking rhinoplasty before he hijacked the plane? Because uh, I'm, that's. It's not the same nose. It's not the same nose, yeah. Similar hairstyle, like, though. Very similar hairline, yeah. yeah. But, like. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, you know what I think? What? I think that guy on the right's the Zodiac killer. Oh, that could be the case, yeah. But yeah, so that was bankruptcy of Penn Central. Oh, Possibly my God. causing an airliner hijack. Possibly. Possibly so. I'm literally um, holding my head up with my mic stand, dude. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna talk about Conrail next time, yeah. except we're not, because next time, next time, the next recording we're gonna do, uh, we're gonna talk about Y2K. Yeah. That's gonna be fun. Yeah. Uh, what did we learn? Uh, that it's been three hours and we should forego safety third and I put that do, on the next I do episode. Like this guy just yeah. lying, like just absolutely like old school ass corruption, just yeah. hideously yeah. Great. like Great I'm just stuff. gonna cook the fucking books. 
and who's Shell gonna stop stuff. me? Yeah, I'm really? just yeah. a stupid diversification program. I'm gonna sign these checks with my nuts. Like <laughs> I love, I love the 160 mile an hour train with a totally flat front because aerodynamics <laughs> is for pussies. A good suck train. Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania Absolutely. Railroad just takes over and subsumes the New York Central and drags it into the grave. <laughs> <laughs> don't forget the New Haven Tail. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my hat railroad. I don't know what happened to any of the New Haven executives. <laughs> uh, they they all created definitely not whore airlines, LLC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> God. Udo, thank you so much for coming yeah, on. Thank you for coming. No, thank, thank you for you, having me. We're gonna... sticking this out. Yeah. If the if the people if the I people want more Udo, yeah. Where can they find it? Uh, Twitter. I also have a what's blog. your Twitter? My Twitter is a three twenty lga. I recently put it under my name, so if you search my name, it should show up. Um, I also have a blog called Home Signal. I post very sporadically, and usually, yeah, at great length. I, as, yeah. you, as I'm sure you guys have noticed, I have a bit of a TLDR problem. Um, but <laughs> it's good information that the viewers need to hear. I'm yeah, glad. That's right. Th- this, is, this is the hope. Um, but yeah, I am, I am on those two platforms. Um, and right, check that out. Check out uh, 10,000 Losses, Lions Up by Donkeys, Trash Future, Kill James Bond. Uh, I would say I would advertise the the Kill James Bond live show, but we sold out in two hours. Wow! So, yeah, good for I'm, you. Congrats! I'm, yeah, I'm I'm nervous as hell about going now. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and hopefully next time we'll do we'll do one with a slightly larger capacity, and I'll be able to advertise that. Well, congratulations, Dallas. Yes. Thank you. All right, next all right everybody stop listening now. Fuck off. Boston molasses disaster. Anyways. Yes. <laughs> all right. Good night, everyone. I'll go my nuts, bro. Night. night. Thanks again for having me.